<laughs> What's happening, weirdos? This is the incredible Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power, The 33 Strategies of War, Mastery, and The Laws of Human Nature. He is one of the most interesting uh, people I've ever met in my life. And what happened was we were looking for guests uh, to come on the pod, and I texted Ryan Holiday, who's the incredible author, and uh, my friend, and I said, who should I have on? Robert was the first name he gave me. Robert Green is Ryan Holiday's mentor, and I can see why. So interesting, but I will say, not at all what you might expect from a guy who's most known for writing a book called The 48 Laws of Power. I, I was like, what, what is this going to be like? You're going to be surprised uh, I think as well. So let's get into it. Couple things to plug up top. First of all, we have a new date, May 8th here in Los Angeles. I am part of the Netflix is a joke comedy festival doing a live You Made It Weird here in Los Angeles. So if you would like tickets, they are available now, May 8th. Just look for the Netflix is a joke fest and come see us. Uh, do a live You Made It Weird podcast. It's going to be great. We're going to pack it with amazing guests. Hope to see you there. Also, this Friday, if you're listening to this the week this comes out, I will be at Largo, largo-la.com for tickets. Always amazing. The last one was Mulaney and David Spade and Maggie May. Just incredible, incredible, incredible. And on Saturday, my one and only out-of-town tour date, I will be in Austin, part of the Moon Tower Comedy Fest on uh, April 23rd. Look up the Moon Tower Comedy Fest. Hope to see you in Austin on that date. As you know, this podcast is supported by sponsors that I actually love. I'm, I'm super serious about that. And these uh, Pete's Picks, as I call them, are absolutely no exception to that. First and foremost is my cold plunge. I talk about the cold plunge in this episode with Robert. I talk about the cold plunge most episodes because f without a doubt, it is the product that has changed my life the most and that I look forward to the most and that I make sure is a part of my morning routine the most. I absolutely, absolutely love my cold plunge. If you guys are into the Wim Hof method or are just looking for something healthy and vibrant and exciting to start your day off right or so much more often for me, reboot your day, I can't tell you, yesterday I was having one of the worst days. Uh, Leela got up in the middle of the night, I was grumpy, I was tired, I was pinched, I was off, and I had to tape an episode of uh, James Corden. I was going to do James Corden that afternoon, and I just couldn't get off the wrong foot. I was behind the eight ball. I'm telling you, three minutes in the cold plunge, it's like you slept for nine hours. It is the biggest life hack I've uncovered. Uh, I don't even register it as cold anymore. I get in, obviously there's the exhilaration of the water, but after 30 seconds, it's peace. My mind is still, it's sort of like a forced meditation. It brings you into your body. It's very embodying. It's wonderful for your metabolism. It's wonderful for your energy, for your mental clarity. But for me, like I said, it's like you slept for nine hours. You get out and you get a redo, a complete redo on the day. I've seen other 
Cold plunges, this is at thecoldplunge.com. The cold plunge that these guys make is incredible. The other ones that I've seen not only cost thousands of dollars more, but this one doesn't look like a coffin. <laughs> so many of them look like weird, like cattle troughs or coffins. They look scary. This one is a modern, sleek, and beautiful angular white bathtub. It is a nice accent to our yard. I, we keep it outside. It doesn't take up a lot of space, doesn't use a lot of energy. In fact, it only costs about a dollar a day to maintain. As you guys know, I'm six foot six and I fit in it quite easily. John, the man who designed it, he's also six six, so they made it with height in mind. Nothing is better for my health, my mood, my creativity, even my sleep. I've seen dramatic improvement since I've started plunging just two, three minutes every day. I, when we travel, I, I still take cold showers and stuff, but I miss it. If you know how great a cold shower feels and how much that can reboot and revitalize your day, a cold plunge, once you get that temperature even lower, it's a complete game change. And I always like to mention this too. I was talking to a friend about it and he loved that I mentioned that at the beginning, I was getting in at 60 degrees and I was shivering. But the next day, I got in at 60, wasn't shivering. Then after a couple of days of that, went down to 58, then went down to 50. Now I'm down to 39 and it is a pleasure to get in. I absolutely love it. It's the best part of my day. Noticeable improvement, even in just like I said, two sessions. And it's the perfect way to start your day, or I sometimes do it at night to help me wind down, clear my mind, and let your body solve what your mind can't. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool. So if you want a shortcut to a happier, healthier you, and show your support of this podcast, go to thecoldplunge.com and use promo code WEIRD for your discount. It's $150 off, and even it means so much to me. Show your support of this podcast. Also, our friends at Apollo talk about a product that I use every day that has absolutely helped me in every aspect of my life. The Apollo Neuro is a wearable tech that helps your body recover from stress. It can help you relax, sleep, focus, and be more productive. It's like a wearable hug for your nervous system. You've heard Val and I talk a lot about this. How does it do it? How does it convince your nervous system that you are being held? How does it help you get calm and get into a flow state or recover from something that was stressful or unwind at the end of the day? It uses touch therapy to help you feel safe and in control. What does that mean? I wear mine on the inside of my wrist. Val wears hers on her ankle, which is uh, even more subtle. I like wearing it on my wrist because I like talking about it, and I think it looks cool. The design is wonderful. The Apollo Neuro delivers gentle, soothing vibrations that train your nervous system to recover and rebalance after stress, which means it speaks to your body in the language that your body can understand. If you've ever like patted on yourself at a certain rhythm, and then you slow that rhythm down, You'll notice that that's like a good way to trick yourself into falling asleep, for example. That's what the Apollo is doing, but for lots and lots of different uh, uses. For example, it can be used to wake up in the morning. Energy and wake up is an incredible pre-workout setting. It's better than a shot of espresso and you don't have to get any chemicals involved. It just gets your heart beating and your blood flowing. Social and open is what I use it on when I'm doing this podcast or clear and focused. Both of those are wonderful 
to get into that open, gracious, thoughtful space where you have access to your brain, access to your uh, to your openness and your and your ability to to socialize. Rebuild and recover. This is the funny one. It's what I use after I get off the phone calling home. Sometimes that can be a little bit stressful. It's wonderful to have the fuse box to your nervous system. You open it up, you get on your phone, you activate your Apollo, and it starts melting that stress away. I can't even tell you how much we swear by it. Meditation and mindfulness, is it's helped me get a deeper meditation practice. The first time I tried it, I was like, is this thing meditating for me? Relax and unwind, I use for serious stress. Sometimes I use it when I'm traveling. I recently flew to New York. I had it on relax and unwind the whole time. I noticed that my neck was less tense, that I had less jet lag. It was incredible. And sleep and renew, I use to fall asleep at night. And even better, I use it if I wake up in the middle of the night. I push the Apollo. You don't have to go on your phone. You can push it on the Apollo itself. It reruns the last program that you did and helps me fall back asleep for those times when you wake up in the middle of the night and you need a little help getting back to bed. It's incredible trains your nervous system to cope with stress better over time. The more you use it, the better it works. Developed by my friend, Dr. David Ravine. I'm I'm his friend because I loved his product and we got in touch. And a neuroscientist, board-certified psychiatrist. This is not woo-woo. These guys have been studying the impacts of chronic stress in humans for nearly 15 years. And Apollo's effects on stress, sleep, cognitive performance, and recovery have been proven in multiple clinical trials and real-world studies. So this is real science. It really works. I absolutely love it. And you can get 10% off and show your support of this podcast by going to apolloneuro.com slash weird. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O dot com slash weird. Improve your life and show your support of the show, which as always means so, so much. Last but not least, speaking of Corden, I wore these jeans on Corden yesterday. That's how confident I am that they look good. They are my perfect jean. If they are the perfect jean and they are my perfect jeans. As you guys know, I absolutely hate a hard pant. I don't understand why we're going around wearing clothes that are uncomfortable, that don't give, that don't stretch. Well, probably because they don't look good. Well, the perfect jean is here to fix that. They look great. I mean, TV great, late night show great, but they fit incredible and they're super soft and flexible and they look so good, no one needs to know. I couldn't pull off yoga pants. I couldn't pull off Lululemon, even though I thought I could. I'm not Sting. I'm not Phil Collins. But why are we trapping our bodies and restricting our privates like they owe us money? These are the best pants I've ever owned. I literally haven't taken them off since they arrived. I have them in gray. I have them in black. I have them in two shades of blue. They're premium stretch fabric, 2% spandex, 2.5% rayon for extra comfort and movement that your man parts require. The jean stretches so your nuts ain't crushed, thereby providing the only true home for your bone. They're super soft with a specialized washing so your jeans literally feel as soft as a baby's butt. You may even forget you're wearing pants. They're also incredibly, incredibly durable. Highest quality materials and sewing techniques. I can attest to that. I've had so many regular cotton jeans that rip if I wear them as much as I wear these guys. I haven't had to replace a single pair since and I've been uh, wearing them for many, many, many months. Best of all, they're not khakis. Fuck your khakis. What are you doing? Get get those khakis out of here. Wear perfect jeans. Spare your nuts. 
and look good at the, at the same time. The perfect gene for the perfectly imperfect men, just 60 bucks when you use code WEIRDO at checkout. Liberate your lower limbs with the one and only perfect gene, whether you're working with lemons or lentils, a three-leaf clover, or a big old honking eggplant. The perfect gene has you covered. Go to www.theperfectgene.nyc. That's the perfect gene, J-E-A-N, not genetics, gene, dot N-Y-C, and use code WEIRDO at checkout for 25% off and do yourself a favor and get the most comfortable pants and pretty much the only pants that I wear, the perfect gene. Thank you for your support of the show. Guys, thank you for the support of this show. Enjoy Robert Green. Thank you, Ryan Holiday, for the hookup. He was awesome. Get into it. Oh, shit. I almost forgot. Please watch How We Roll. (laughs) I always forget to promote it. Please watch How We Roll. Thursday night, 9.30 CBS. Guys, we are in the clutch. We're right in the pocket where we're going to find out if we get a second season. This Thursday, there's two new episodes airing back-to-back on CBS, 9.30. Please check it out. It would mean so much. All right. In the meantime, enjoy Robert Greene. You'll hold it like a real stand-up comedian. How do you okay. feel about that? All right. This is all very different from <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, it's low-tech. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I promise you it's... Uh, You're recording it on 8-track? Or? It's on 8-track, yeah. <laughs> You're in Studio City right now. <laughs> Dave Grohl owns this. Uh, that was a very obscure reference. What? <laughs> Those old rock bands... Not old rock bands, but the rock bands like Nirvana that then became Foo Fighters, obviously, with Dave Grohl, they record on old stuff. They all want old stuff. Oh, really? And there's a very famous studio called Studio City, I think. No, it's not Studio City. Sound City? Sound City. Sound City. That's that's what I'm referencing. But it's on tape. And they want it because, like, Nevermind, The Beatles, all those things were done on tape. And it's sort of this rebellion against... uh, digital and how bad digital sounds this is back in the 90s so the weird i'm i forgive yeah you're gonna have to do that oh we're, we're taping yeah is that okay oh yeah sure you think i'm just interesting for free <laughs> <laughs> I, think I just talk about sound know. city uh for shits and gigs formality i didn't know oh yeah no uh that'll be later i, I will say and i i often forget i'm so honored to be talking with you well I'm there you go honored oh no get out of Humbled here Humbled and honored in fact get out of here well i'm glad that you're here how are you feeling today this morning today i'm fine um i've been uh i'm I'm on antibiotics not that i need to confess that to the world so i've been people like to know under the weather from them yeah but today's a little better yeah okay a nice meditation this morning yeah because you're buddhish you mean like a mix of Buddhism and Jewish? Yeah. <laughs> I am Buddhist. <laughs> Never heard you that You picked before. up on that very quickly. Yeah. yeah that's, you're looking at Ram Dass's on the wall. He was Buddhist. I love Buddhish. the Ram Dass quote in the bathroom. That's Did you love it? Very much so. You wouldn't? I didn't love it when my mother marched me in there and tapped on it, insisting that I do it to her. Because the quote is, love, oh, pe- love oh. people like trees. and Sometimes it's hard. Well, it's very hard. Particularly with one's mother. I don't know if you have... My, well, Forget it. My mother's wonderful. She he lis- listens to all my podcasts. Does she? Yes. What's her name? Lorette. Hi, Lorette. She's 95. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Does she listen to them on phonograph? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, she's a little bit old style. So yeah. she, she, she has a language when she talks about computers that is just... 
it's so strange. It's so weird. It's like from another era, like oh, yeah. the 19th century. Yeah. So, you know, Robert, I, 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 pulled, I got your interview, but there was no picture. I can't find a picture. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I just hear voices, you know? I mean... <laughs> I mean, we're hoping she's talking about the podcast because, you know, as things deteriorate, you don't want things to get too strange. Um, Pretty sure about Beautiful. That. 95-year-old mom. Yeah. And, and just, she's got more energy than I do. Does she Probably really? better health than I am. Get out. I know. And she lives alone. Get, well, this Get is it. probably why she's thriving. She got rid of your dad. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm really assuming a level of familiarity no, no, with he, you. He, he passed away. They were, they were happy. They, they were, were very happy. Get out. I don't know. I pre- see. Well, I'm doing what people well, do. I'm projecting. Well, my happiness is, is is a relative concept. Well, I guess they were. Can we say they were peaceful or that they enjoyed each other? Very much so. I mean, my dad was great. He's a wonderful man. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, they were very happy. They had 50 years together. Wow. But uh, she lives in the house that I grew up in, in 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 Brentwood, and um, wow. you know t- takes care of it by herself and all that. So she's. Well, this is like one of your things. I, I, well, it's not one of your things. It's one of the things, like having some reason that you're needed. So it seems like the house needs her. That's probably like a really good thing for her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Very interesting. Yeah. And she listens. So she's going to listen to this. She listens to all of them, but she never pronounces the names right. You mean of the shows? Yeah, of the people. So I never know what she's talking about. Or but she's got. she's got... I have to say, because she's listening to this, she has all of her marbles. Yeah. I have to be careful on the podcast. So yeah, of course. No, I understand. If I knew my mom would listen to this, I, I, I'd be talking completely differently. <laughs> you wouldn't be talking at all. I wouldn't be talking at all. <laughs> no, she started listening. And Robert, she picked, so she, somebody, I kept, it was a joke on this podcast. No one tell my mom how to listen to podcasts. Yeah. And then, like a joke, she picked one episode. She finally figured it out. And she picked one. And it was the one where I talked about the biggest fight we had ever had, which wasn't even that long ago. And me and my wife, Val, we do the Friday episodes together. We're doing a play-by-play. I feel like this is right up your alley. Of one of the biggest humiliations and failures and like like real, real talk. And that was the episode she picked. So I'm not going to say it was the worst. It's about uh, humiliation dealing with her just in your life. Me Me and her and my father, like the biggest... As a wow. grown-up, like and I, how did she handle that? She well, there's my my joke about my parents is that they're not people. So like you're looking for some sort of like, they're, they're trees. They're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're trees. <laughs> they're just their own thing. I've never met anyone like them. So if you were writing a movie script about this, you would and my mom listened to the episode where I she would call and be like, Peter, I I got to be honest with you. At first, I was a little shocked and then later i i heard your perspective and i i had no idea you felt that way like that is that's exactly what i as a joke i can relate to that in fact, yes tell me very similar wording tell me yeah like fantasizing that a parent would say something like that to you or that they do say something she says like she just talks exactly the same way well that is what i wish my mother would say that is oh. not what my mother says oh i i misread okay yeah no that is my fantasy oh, your mom I... Sounds like my fantasy is like because that sounds like a human person. What does she say? I can't even do an impression of it. it it's, oh, come it's, on, you're good at impressions, <laughs> I can tell. She well, would she call might be listening to this and thing. she would like, Well, Peter, I, I listened to you and Valerie talking about that big <laughs> fight that we had. How ridiculous <laughs> on the air. 
<laughs> jabbing on about this and that. I didn't even understand what you were saying. Like it would be something like that. And oh. and you're my. I, I've realized my whole career. So much of it has been motivated by trying to get my parents to understand me, like like a fool, uh-huh. like writing books that they might read them and go, again, my father go, I don't want to, we're going to make this about you in about five seconds. No, but, no, 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 but, no, no, no. <laughs> It's better this way. No, you, you've tricked me. <laughs> not at all. You've seduced me. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> that is the key rule of press is get them talking about themselves. That's if, right. If, yeah, there you go. It's a Jedi true. mind trick. Yeah. Or answer the question you wish they had asked. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you know that one. Uh, I, I, I won't get into it. It's too much. I want to talk about but, you. You mean your dad is also, so you've got like a double whammy? I've got a demo, double whammy, meaning like they're the most unpredictable people in the world and my psychology i think is pretty simple is that like i want to be heard so i became a comedian my voice is amplified i also want to be understood so i wanted i got into a medium where people laugh every three five ten seconds so i get visual auto audible confirmation that i'm being understood which is what i've craved my whole life then i do this podcast and i air all my dirty laundry and everybody comes up people come up to me and they're like i also had a masturbation problem or whatever it might be (laughs) we're not going to get into that well (laughs) you have no idea (laughs) no Uh but um that i I feel like those are the abcs of me well that's a a typical background of a lot of um, performers entertainers people actors and uh People who like to be in front of the camera in public, yeah. you know, it's something I talked about in the in the art of seduction, in the charis- charismatic chapter, where like people who had kind of didn't get enough attention or recognition as children, they want to get it from the audience or the public or the camera. Yeah, sort of like Marilyn Monroe was sort of the prototype of that. And she haunts me. I th- that photo. Have you ever seen that photo of Marilyn? And they're clearly a photo shoot, and it's between posed shots. And no, she I don't just know. This dazed one. out. You gotta Google search that shit. It's, how, how will I find it? Marilyn Monroe dazed out. Oh, really? I think image search would get it to you. Uh-huh. And and it's just the most real shot. They clearly were just testing the bulb or whatever. Uh-huh. It's really real. I, I would add to add to that that it's helpful to have one parent that gives you too much attention and then one parent who withholds attention. Is that, that what sort you of had? Arnold Palmer. Because it's like iced tea, I mean. Exactly. The, yeah, and not lemonade. the person. <laughs> I mean, and I would, I would wager maybe the person. <laughs> Meaning the mom's overlove emboldens you. And the father, I wouldn't say my father withheld love. He loved me as, as, and continues to love me exactly as well as he can. But I wanted to get his attention because he was very... And remains very interested in his own conquering, yeah. his own power. Yeah. And so I was chasing his affirmation. And also then a third energy source comes in when you start to want to redefine yourself to your mother and say, no, I'm not who I pretended to be to get you to love me. I'm actually more complicated than that. So all of that leads to the compulsion wow. of wanting to get on stage. Wow. Right? Even therapy or anything? I've been in therapy. I hope this sounds like the conclusion of therapy. <laughs> no, no. It sounds like somebody I mean, so needs more therapy. Did give you a lot of attention. She did, yeah. Maybe too much. She was sort of suffocating. Well, again, we are going to turn this around. You are a kind and, and compassionate being, I can tell. My mother, and I, I believe I would say this to her, is she would say things like, I'm only happy with you, like when I'm with you. So that is the oh. bleeding over the boundary. So my desire... I understand that very well. Yeah, there you go. Is that something you're comfortable talking about? Because I'm trying to get you to talk. <laughs> well, it, it is, but I don't want a certain someone to be listening in. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, you know, just, just to give it an idea, um, 
So my mom, soon after I had my books came out, because I had success late in life, you know, almost like 40 years old. Mm. She would would go into bookstores and she would pretend that, uh, she would say, do you have the book, The 48 Laws of Power, right? And they say, oh, yes, yes, here it is. And they show it and she goes, oh, that's my son's book, you know, and then... (laughs) That is, if I want to get compliments and praise from my parents, sit with them at a bar, because uh-huh. they'll tell the bartender how amazing they think I am. That's right. where I'll hear my father oh, yeah. be like, Peter's a, g- a genius or whatever. Like, <laughs> that- He hasn't necessarily said that, but like, he'll say, like, he's a very funny man. I'm so proud of him. He'll say that. Yeah. He said, he'll say that to a bartender. So uh-huh. exactly like your mother. Cab drivers. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Do you know? And I, I mean, like. Well, that's nice. It is nice. I'm okay with it. Yeah. I mean, this is our shadow, man. I want to talk to you about this stuff. I love everything you're about. Owning it, right? Yeah. My wound became my skill. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? About my wound? Perhaps. Or just the the principle of like the thing that we're so ashamed of. My mom loved me too much. You should keep that to your fucking self. Like, be embarrassed, I feel like the world says. That's shame. Uh, and, and I was chasing my father. Even that is like sort of a humiliation. I'm supposed to dominate my father. I'm supposed to lap my father. And I'm telling you, these this neediness. I, I keep a file in my phone called "Things Pete Really Likes," and it's very up your alley. Meaning, like, not what I pretend to like, not what I think I'm supposed to like. What do you really like? Well, let me hear some of them. Well, one of them is winning people over. Uh-huh. If someone doesn't like me, nothing uh-huh. excites me more. Uh-huh. Than potentially winning them over. You like people who write nasty comments on YouTube or something, or no or critics more. Or? more mm, it's got to be people. more uh, in my daily life. Like if there's a comedian that I think doesn't like me, I'd like to charm them and, oh. and convince them that they're oh. wrong. <laughs> That's wow. one of them. You could write books about that. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you succeed at how to how to get them to like me? It feels to me, and you are really turning this into the Robert Green podcast. <laughs> It's sales, right? It, it's it's like the first thing is to convince them that you don't care if they like you or not. Uh-huh. You know, wouldn't you agree? I mean, you're the seduction man. Why am I telling you? <laughs> the first, if I want to convince you, whose phone is that? Your phone, Robert? Yeah. Why? Well, because it's beeping. <laughs> no, it isn't. Something made it I turned the sound off. Katie. No, it's not mine. Well, mine's off too. That's really weird. It's okay. Well, um, welcome to reality, everybody. Okay. You can't control it. Okay. Uh, what were we saying? I don't remember. You have to convince people that you don't... This is seduction. Why, why don't you tell me, am I doing it right? If I want to make somebody uh, rethink well, me, the first thing to do is to tell them, it doesn't matter. Look, I get it. Am I too much? Am I? Do I talk too much on podcasts where I should be interviewing the guests? I completely agree. Look, we agree on something. Oh, and and oh. we start well, from that's there. Not what the, that's not what you said. I thought you said it'd be like giving them kind of a cold shoulder, like you don't even care whether they like you or not. But that's not really what you... I'm more direct. I, I would go like... I would concede the point. Yeah, like the sure. thing you think I is bad about me, I agree well, with no, you. No, that's very, very seductive. Yeah. yeah, tell me. Well, I talk in the uh, in the laws of human nature about um, playing people's self opinion. So everybody has an opinion about themselves, right? And it's usually ele- it's usually greater than the reality. Mm. Like I'm 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 ha- they're handsomer than the reality. 
They're funnier than the reality. Yes. They're more noble and moral and good than the reality. They're smarter, etc. And if you enter into it, was that my phone? I heard the ping again. Do you? I can. Oh, we're pinging. We're pinging, Robert. I'm going to swoop in and 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 show you the swipe down menu. I'm going to turn. This is what I do for uh, people over forty. I'll turn your flashlight off, <laughs> and then I'm going to and then I'm going to go ahead and show you. Do not disturb. It's a beautiful function. It's in settings. Well, really, here. Look. Sorry to be. You just swipe down there. There we go. And there you go. Sorry, Robert. I, I hope that wasn't. Uh, crossing boundaries that I uh, just took your phone from you. I know. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, no, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, I'll hand my phone to a, uh, somebody in their 20s. I'll just go, just, just do it. Just do it. Just do, yeah, do what I need. Yeah, even you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, I, there's stuff that people, that I have no yeah. uh, apprehension of. Yeah. You were saying seduction. So, so well, it's, it's seduction. It's just charm. It's just being a, a polite human being. So if you challenge their self-opinion with, with the first thing that you say, immediately walls go up, resistance, kind of this inner tension in their muscles and their chest muscles. They don't like you. They're upset. If, so, if I challenge who you are. Yes. If I say so, to you. So, if I, so yeah. to finish this, yeah. so I have an opinion about you that's kind of negative. huh? Pete's sort of, you know, he's... I don't know. I'm yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Pizza blowhard. Uh, Pete talks too much. These Pizza are blowhard. Pete yeah. talks too much. He talks. Yeah. He reveals too much about himself. He wants all this attention. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, 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 Pete. Yeah. Yes, yes, okay. yes. And then if you immediately then say, well, no, that's not what I'm like. You're like, then you're saying you're kind of stupid. You're challenging their opinion. They're, they have a certain you know confirmation bias. They believe certain things. And you're sort of saying, no, your opinion is wrong. You're, the way you look at the world isn't right. So you're implying that they're irrational, that they're stupid, that they don't know how to judge people, mm. right? Mm. And so if you do the opposite, like what you're saying is, yeah, you're actually right. Pete is like that, right? I'm saying you're smart. Subtitles on, you're smart. Yeah. You're right. You get something that these other idiots yeah, don't get. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you've confirmed their their sense of that they they know how to read people, that they're that they're socially intelligent, that they're keyed into your psychology. Okay, so that wall that went up went, starts to go down a little bit, mm. and now they're more open to your influence and to your to a charm offensive. So that's law number one of any seduction of any interaction with people. And it's not bullshitting. It's not like you have to lie. Mm. Because quite frankly, when people do criticize you, there's always a grain of truth to it. Of course. Unless they're a psychopath, you know, and there are people like that. Yeah. So it's not like you're making it up. It's not like you're playing a game. You're actually admitting something about yourself that you don't want to admit, right? So if you go into every social interaction seeing things that way, you won't believe the power that you have with people because everybody is in our lives is like challenging who we are. They're saying, oh, you're not as smart as you think you are. We're never getting attention. We don't get that kind of validation where somebody actually says, no, you're right. I am like that. Mm. It's so rare. So that's a very powerful strategy that you're employing. And what I loved, uh, I love the affirmation you gave me, but I also just love that you shone a light on it's real. 
Like if you love, like the yes man, the cliche of the yes man is, is meaningless. It's like white noise to the, right. to the powerful person. Somebody does, oh yes, yes, we should, we should uh, uh, make a movie about uh, Strawberry Shortcake, the doll from the 80s. Just terrible ideas, just like constantly, maybe that is a good idea. But constantly, I think we just came up with a billion dollar idea. But like, <laughs> if I value my friend's, Mike Birbiglia comes to mind. He's the friend that if something I make and it sucks, he won't say it sucks because I don't like cruel people. No, no. But no. he'll be like, it wasn't for me. He'll Or if he wants to be real mean, he goes like, is this what we're on earth to do? And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know you know how he speaks in his language. Exactly. So he, he is kind of, uh, he, he is sort of softening a little bit for you. Yeah. But you read between the lines and yes. understand yes. that he is criticizing you. Well, this is a big thing for you is is the language of, of powerful people. I'm not saying Mikey and I are powerful, but it's interesting well, you are. how different. There certainly is... This is my main thing I want to talk to you about with my disease with with claiming my own power, owning it. I'll give you an example, and then I really want you to talk about human beings. Seduction and power are two things that I think people bristle at. And I'll, I'll tell you, I hope this is the conclusion of my therapy. No. What's up? Never. Never. <laughs> but part of my strategy... I'm very competitive. I didn't know I was very competitive until I was probably 38 years old. Like, it didn't... Whoa. I, I just didn't... I would never have said in a definition of me, I'm competitive. And then I realized that I... Maybe 35. That I was... Part of my competitive strategy was telling you that I'm not competitive. You know what I mean? Like... Oh. Because it's grotesque to me to say... Oh, yeah. Like, even to you right now... Robert, of course I'm powerful. Are you kidding? Like, are you fucking nuts? Like, you're powerful. Katie's powerful. We're all powerful in our ways. But it's gross to me to say that. And it's gross to me to even say, like, and I can seduce people. Why don't you talk about, because it seems up your alley, the shame that we have about things that we actually want and, like, how you have to overcome that. Well, um, you know, we're we're creatures that are kind of masters at denial, right? So... um, when you look at children, you have children so you know very well, they, this, they haven't been socialized yet. They haven't been kind of, they haven't had half their personality cut off. They kind of act out. They are who they are. Sometimes they're sweet and angelic. Sometimes they're a beast and they're devilish and satanic, <laughs> right? And they haven't learned to kind of cut the satanic part out of them, right? So that is what eventually, we can talk about that later, goes into the shadow, mm. Right. And so, um, we all have that. We all had to be socialized at an early age. We were eight, nine, earlier than that when we are in school with our parents. You know, you, you're, you, have to, every, you have to be polite and nice, and the teacher has to like you, and the students have to like you. Your parents inculcate you with that, teachers, etc. And so, all of those sort of slight dark qualities in you go underground. And one of those qualities is being competitive, is being ambitious, is wanting power, Children want power. Mm-hmm. They want their. They want to have control over their parents. They're these weak little small creatures, right? That are basically helpless. They depend on you for their survival for their very life, and they don't like that. They want to have a sense of, well, I can actually manipulate my very large and powerful father and get what I want out of him. Mm-hmm. Children want power, and they also have very large dreams and goals. You know, I, I, you know, I remember when I was young, I thought I would be 
like this great famous novelist, etc., or I'm going to be president, or I'm going to be the you know the next soccer star, etc. Mm. They're not ashamed of it. They haven't learned to be ashamed, and you know this is to me it's human to have these desires and these wants, to feel ambitious, to feel competitive. And so when we, when we deny them, we're actually denying who we are. Mm. We're denying our own nature. We're denying a part of our character. And the people who, you know, when I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, there were a lot of people who were kind of upset about it, right? You know, a lot of people weren't, but some people were. That's such an ugly, amoral, disgusting book. Do you really want to teach psychopaths to be more psychopathic? Aren't you ashamed about yourself? And I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of the time, these people were the most passive-aggressive types I've ever confronted. Mm. Their moralistic front, their their sense of outrage was actually, ah, um, mm. was actually kind of masking an opposite quality, right? That they're secretly in love with power, but they won't they want to deny it. So the people who deny that they're ambitious are teeming with ambition. The people who say, <laughs> I'm not interested in power, they can often be very interested in other negative forms of power, in making people feel guilty, in make, making you know things like that, right. passive-aggressive strategies. Right. So the denial is actually, this is something that Freud you know, says, Things that we don't want to admit to ourselves come up to the, our consciousness through a negative, through a denial of it. So the denial is actually the reality. So wow. Tie a it comes up in sort of mirrors. It flips yeah. or inverts. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, wow, that's really fascinating. Why uh, do you think we teach kids to be ashamed of their ambition? That might not be your field, but I'm curious if you have an opinion. Well, um, you know, I don't know if I'm if I'm totally qualified to say this, but or to comment on that. But a lot of it is our own embarrassment, our own shame. We see that um, that they're like what we wish we could be, and we have envy of them. And when we feel envy of their kind of naturalness, of the fact, you know, and I'm not saying it's good and healthy to be continually acting out into to stay with that dark, satanic aspect of the personality all the way into your 20s and 30s, that can cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So there is a reason why we have to become social and, and it's learn It's collateral how to, damage that it squanders, it squashes dreams and stuff. But it's necessary. Like yeah. Have, yes. yeah, but there are ways to, to, to accommodate that dark side without completely repressing it and using it in your work like you do in your comedy or in, in, in any of your other creative ventures, right? But yeah. I think um, secretly, a lot of people as we get older, we envy young people. We envy particularly children, their naturalness, the qualities that we've had to repress. And when somebody feels envy, the first thing they do is they deny it, which we talked about just just now, and they actually do the opposite. They they become, they, they kind of blame the other person for the feelings that they're having, mm. and they they think that something's wrong with them, whereas in fact they're actually secretly envying them. I mm. mean, that's wow. it's a complicated question. I loved your answer. Oh, I feel okay. like you that's polished. That's ready to go, Robert. Okay, do that on the you. Tonight Show. Okay, I loved it. <laughs> Tell me, like, uh, I, I I don't know why I want to clear my throat and say like I'm not 
interested in celebrity. I know you worked with 50 Cent. So there's in a, in a spirit, what does he smell like? I'm just kidding. What, what <laughs> does hip hop get right? Because when I want to psych myself up for a pitch on the treadmill, um, I listen to Eminem. I listen to 50 Cent. Uh-huh. I, I like, I, to me, it seems like this celebration of shadow. There's violent. Right. Uh, I mean, look at the whole, I'm talking about in the 90s, to 2000s, everybody running to the record stores because Eminem's talking about killing his mother. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, You can what identify the f- with that. What's that? You can identify with that. Yeah, and I'm not ashamed. I don't think you're trying to shame me. I'm not ashamed of it. I think most of us listen to the music and stop there. I'll listen to the music and be like, you're goddamn right. I have fantasies about doing all sorts of horrible things to all sorts of people, yeah, yeah. and that's my shadow. This is this is my Iron John. You know, Iron John, the story of Iron John. Sure, like he's in a cage, but you know, I I've made a, a pact with him. I talk to him, and I understand him, and, and we yeah. have an understanding. Um, my wild man, for those that might not know the story, um, what does hip hop get right? Well, um, you know, I'm similar to you. Um, I, I kind of grew up, just this is an aside, but I go old school hip hop because I lived in New York in the early 80s. Yeah. I'm what did Run older. DMC get right? <laughs> that, I was totally into Run DMC. Yeah. yeah. I just, uh, every they, they were my they were my idol. I loved that. That was my favorite. Wow. I even go back to Grandmaster Flash. Sure. And then, you know, all of the 80s. That's an LA, an LA hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh and when I was writing my war book, my strategies of war, it was kind of, you know, there's a lot of aggressive energy in there. I would listen to 50 Cent and sort of all of his early albums, and they'd kind of put me in the in a yeah. martial mood. You might enjoy this, that Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was filming Gangs of New York, so he was uh-huh. playing Bill the Butcher, the most fierce guy. I saw on Charlie Rose, Martin Scorsese says to him, he was like, well, Daniel would be off listening to Eminem. And I'm like, oh, really? Jesus, man, it's all of us. There's no better... Yeah. There's not like a, a a more extreme thing you can do in yeah. polite society than put on these records of people that we know, you know, these are three-dimensional people. Yeah. Like Eminem doesn't feel that way all the time, but he found a way, and, and, and 50 Cent doesn't always want to talk about how great he is or how tough he is, but like there's a need. Keep going, forgive. No, um, well, <laughs> I mean, Eminem is not black, but, um, you know, hip-hop is primarily um, black American, African, African-American culture. Yes. And they have a different experience of life than we do. The kind of the dark side of human nature, which white people try and hide, desperately hide and make it, and pretend that everything is just groovy, that we're such a liberal, loving country and everyone's together, et cetera. Yeah. Black people know that's not the reality of America. <laughs> America is shit. You know, America's brutal. Yeah, there's a yeah. there's a boot coming down on my neck. Yeah. You know, this is what it's like to grow up in Southside Queens. So they don't have the illusions that a lot of white people have, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, when it comes to express, they don't have a shame. So when it comes to their work, their art, their music, they're expressing it in very direct forms. It's their way of venting a lot of their frustration. And also, and, oh, sorry, Robert. No, no, no. And also ambition, too. I was tying it to the children. Like, you and I, two white boys, grew up sort of... I felt like I grew up... Guilty. Mask it. Yeah. What I wrote down was, my friend had a son. His name's Leo, and I would call him King Leo. And I remember his mother being like, don't don't call him King Leo. Oh, what bullshit. (laughs) 
But it's call cool. him call him Emperor Leo that, next time, buddy. <laughs> I called myself. I, I didn't call myself King Pete. It doesn't have the same ring to it as King Leo. For some reason, King Leo sounds nice to me. But uh, you that, can say Peter the Great. Peter the Great. Why not? <laughs> I'm sure he did some horrible things. I need to check my history. But uh, with with rap, there's also all of this. Yeah, yeah. Let's let that out of the closet. Yeah, I'm yeah, the yeah. best. Fuck you. Yeah, right. And when we're going into that state, you're writing your book on war. I'm going into a pitch, even though it's friendly, I'm going to smile the whole time. Yeah. There's this sort of like, I'm asking you to give me $100 million. <laughs> really? A TV show, maybe not $100 million, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm asking you to give me $20 million. Yeah, it takes a lot of balls and you need to... Nobody thinks in these terms. So, of course, I'm listening to Eminem on the yeah, way in. Yeah, or, yeah. or Michael Phelps is listening to Eminem before the match. It's like, yeah. but but that 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 shell around it is so interesting yeah. to me. And I was curious about the ambition side of it. Yeah, well, I mean, look at the other side of it where, um, you know, other forms of music, it's all about it's all about pretending that, you know, that you, you, you feel so humble and you're so kind of, you know, crushed by life. You're such a victim and you feel so weak and you're kind of celebrating that, which is another, celebrating your weakness is another form of, of power yeah. and ambition. Yeah. And so... I tell people, like, um, we all feel kind of crushed. We all feel repressed. Naturally, it's part of being a human being and being socialized. But particularly in an environment where political correctness is kind of running rampant and we're never really allowed to, given license to kind of express what we want to express, who we are, what our real opinions are. And when someone comes around and does, whoa. It's like a magnet. Yeah, yeah, man, that's right. Yeah. I do feel that way. I can't be great. I am crushing it. Yeah. 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 Finally, someone's seeing the truth. Mm. Then maybe they're going a little bit far with it, but it's fine to go far. And so I tell people who are creative and who are artists, never be afraid of your shadow side. That's where all of your power lies mm. in your artwork and your creating and your communicating to the public. Mm. People want, they feel so crushed and so tight inside that when somebody comes around and opens the floodgates and says this is you know this is what i'm about and expresses the reality mm. people love it and that's sort of i think i don't want to toot my own horn but i there i am being kind of white and guilty yeah um but the 48 laws <laughs> picture of, me white and guilty <laughs> picture me white and guilty <laughs> is that an m&m song that's a no it's riding dirty is, is oh. the original song oh <laughs> Okay, I didn't know that one. Yeah, white and guilty. Um, weird Al did white and nerdy, I believe. Oh, Weird Al. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and now weird I'm making Al, a white okay. and guilty. You're pulling Weird Al references on me. That's All great. day. Yeah, I've, been, <laughs> I've had seven, and that was the first one I managed to get in. Just kidding. Um, so uh, You were saying not to toot my own horn, but here oh, I am. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, but the 48 Laws of Power had success because it was dark, mm. because it was transgressive, because it was even a little nasty and naughty and mm-hmm. saying things that people aren't supposed to say. And that's what attracted people to it. Robert, not to toot my own horn, but I'm a three-wing four on the Enneagram. Do you know the Enneagram at all? The what? <laughs> the Enneagram. I oh, vaguely love. know that. It's a, it doesn't matter. The four is the guy who, uh, the individualist. And I, I love airing my dirty laundry, so that happens oh. to work for me. But that's the goal. I haven't sat down and write it out, but the goal of this podcast is like, Let's have a place where we can say, hey, I think my mother was in love with me. Or I, uh, you know. Is that true? I've I've changed it a little bit. I I used to think that my mom thought I was like a little husband, uh, a surrogate husband. But now I'm like, or was it a father? 
or did it become a father at some point? Like whatever's going on, she's leaning on me in ways that oh, is not oh, the I traditional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like certainly not physical or, or romantic. But yeah, there was yeah, like a my father was the villain at, that we all sort of banded against, and then oh, really? I, and I was the savior. Wow, this, this, it's it's crazier that I'm not. Well, Freud more. could write several books on you. I believe he did. He he didn't have to meet <laughs> me to write books on it. Yeah. So, but what I'm saying is, and this was not a tactic. If for, this is, goes back to what we were saying. It's true. First and foremost, I do these podcasts, and I untwist. Uh-huh. I need it, and I love it. And I and I, I have my little mission statement on a post-it over there. It's to restore, uh, to reduce suffering, to restore connection, and to humbly and proudly return what I've been given. Right? That, wow. Those are the three things. I need it so it's real. So you can tell I'm not just doing it because it's in vogue right now. Yeah. But like, it, there's also like an Eminem quality. Is what I'm striving for is like here's where we will talk because I like people like us. Perhaps I'm fucking tired of talking about what are you watching. What are you watching? Fuck off. What am I watching? Like, what are you afraid of? Like, when you get up to pee at 5 a.m., who do you think is going to get you? That's what I'd like to know. Is this a question? No, no. Oh. I'm not asking you. That's that's a little too uh, youngian for us. Um, is this a question? <laughs> I'm just agreeing with you that, like, hip-hop has that, yeah. and, and you're saying the magnetism of, of, of that. Being seductive, being interesting, and being powerful. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not like uh, an artist or a hip-hop artist is just like venting vitriol and bitterness, Mm. you know? A lot of the power that comes from someone like Eminem or 50 is you sense there's kind of a rage, you know, and who knows what's in, in Eminem's closet. I, I, and he, I know he had a trouble, very troubled childhood. Mm. But I know 50's childhood very well. And he's not just... 50 is... If you, I know him, he's actually a very controlled person. Mm. Um, you know, and he's not like thuggish in real life or anything. Mm-hmm. But the sense of you feel this rage because life is shit and people were horrible to you. And you're trying to contain it. You're trying to control it, but you can't. And it comes out, the sense, I know this is abstract, but the sense of expressing your rage and you can sense that the person is dealing with it and not comfortable with it, but they can't help it, Mm. is what gives it its double power. Mm. And I'm thinking of, I I analyzed this in the Art of Seduction because it's something that fascinates us. People who just rant don't have that quality to me, Mm. right? So I was thinking of tension. Yeah, that they wish they weren't doing it. Almost. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Go so on. I like like uh, Malcolm X was kind of the icon for me um, because uh, I wrote about him in the Art of Seduction. I've always been fascinated by him as a figure because I love he was a hustler and a pimp, and you know, uh, you know, on the streets of Boston, etc., mm. and in prison, mm. and his life was spiraling downward, and he was nobody, and he was going to die in early age. And he found himself in the prison library and reading books, and he just turned his life around. I just love stories like yeah, that. Yeah, what's not to love? That's, that's amazing. But he had lots of rage and anger from his childhood, from just being black in America, etc. And he became one of the most electric speakers ever. And it's hard for us to understand the electrifying quality of a Malcolm X speech because it's from the 50s and 60s. It seems a little dated. We don't understand it. Mm. And we don't come from the same cultural background. 
But I put myself in the mindset, and I listened to it very closely, and it is so powerful. And he had that quality, and he talked about it, where he didn't just spew hatred against white people. He was trying to sort of control it and express it in the most eloquent fashion, and it just kind of spilled out of him. Mm. And the, the the black public just thought he was, it was just the greatest thing. He had incredible, one of the greatest speakers ever, mm. I think. Mm. And um, the sense that that there's something inside that's burning you and you're trying to find a way to communicate it and you're struggling with it is what gives it double power. I love that. And we're back to genuity. We're back to meaning it. Like we're genuity? Ba- like isn't that a word? Being genuine? Oh. You're the you're the writer. I thought it was like Jewish or something. Genuine. Uh, in Jew in Jewy <laughs> is being very Jewy. <laughs> but it, I'm embarrassed because I I believe you have a better thesaurus in your mind. But being genuine. Um, oh no, I never heard it pronounced that way. It's nice. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm gonna go in my car and uh, start the engine in the garage for a while. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, we're back to meaning it. Something that fascinates me, right? So I'm a comedian. I've heard you talk about this. Everybody wants to be a rock star or whatever. And a lot of people want to be comedians and a lot of people want to be actors. And you're sort of like, no shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you you want to say, like, that is what our culture values. Would you speak a little bit about, like, the discrepancy between people want something because it's what our culture values and wanting what's written on your bones to do. Like, it sounds like Malcolm X, it's written on his bone. He has to do this. There's even a resistance. He he doesn't even want to be doing it necessarily. And then there are people that are like learning. I'm thinking about people driving around, listening to your books on tape and, and just kind of trying to psych themselves up to be like a big shot in business or, 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 or learn how to control a room so they can pitch a movie. And you realize that that anchor, I feel like we're talking about a weight that counterbalances the blind white light of, of I want to be rich and famous, which actually repels people needs to be anchored. I had a long conversation with somebody recently about like some people, you just don't feel it. First, it's not true. It's not what you're written on your marrow to do. And two, it's not anchored with that like weight, something sad, I might even say. Because I would say anger doesn't even work. 50s music is a little bit sad to me. Eminem's music is certainly sad to me, meaning men are taught it's okay to be angry so we, we can listen to him yell. But underneath it, you're like, shit, this dude misses his mommy. Like, he wants his mommy. Mm-hmm. He wants his fucking mommy. Like, right? That's the anchor. Would you talk a little bit about, maybe, I don't want to say just plainly discouraging people to, like, have more, like, encouraging them to have more creative, more authentic dreams than just rich and fame. And also maybe a little bit about that anchor, the counterbalance. Okay, I'll have to think about the counterbalance. It'll come to me. But I'm thinking, um, it's something I address in, in one of my books called Mastery, mm. um, where, you know, you're, everybody is born, an individual is born completely unique. Your circumstances, Pete Holmes, with your parents and your genetic code and all that, there's never going to be another Pete Holmes ever in the past or ever in the future. There's something very different, weird, unique about you, right? Mm -hmm. And to the degree that you become aware of that, because when you were three or four years old, you were very aware of it. You knew what made you different. 
your sense of likes and dislikes were very strong. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to the thing we talked about earlier, and then as you get socialized, you start listening to your peers, and you start listening to what's cool and what teachers tell you, and oh, you need to go to law school, or Pete, you should become a priest. I think that was your mm-hmm. some of your background. You know, mm-hmm. your parents are telling you, your friends are telling you what's cool, I want to be a rock star, etc., and you start losing contact with what's genuine about you, what's real about you. And so your desires become unnatural. You want things just because other people want them, right? Mm. The kind of mimetic desire, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the moment you fall for that myth and you lose contact with what's... And, you, and it doesn't have to be grand. It's not like you're Napoleon. Maybe you're, you, what you secretly love is working with your hands and building things and being a great carpenter or even being a great parent. I don't care what it is. But you know that this is something that connects to who you are, to what you were when you were three or four years old. There's a genuine quality about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you choose that path or you find that path as you found your path I don't know in what age, late 20s, et cetera, into comedy because it was the perfect fit. Yeah, it, it, it brings all of the things of your childhood and all of your experience and will make you different into play. Mm-hmm. It's your power. It's your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in connecting to it, you became famous and you became you know, very successful, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are missing that. A lot of people grab for what's other, you know, oh, I want to be a comedian because... Because look at Pete, he's, he's got all this success and people like him and he's funny. And I can be funny sometimes, but in fact, it's not, it's not who they are, mm-hmm. right? And so the anchor, the counterweight is, um, I don't know if I'm hitting it right because I'm not sure I completely understand it, but... Um, <laughs> Excuse me, just, well, I'd, I'd love to, let's, let's tackle the anchor together. I want to talk a little bit about what you just said, and I'll remember to bring us back to right. anchor. Because what you just said, I mean, yeah. it should be on a plaque somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> like, it's, it's uh-huh. everything. Well. Mirroring, I think I, I've, I did some research, obviously, about you, and, and I've Uh-oh. heard you say that before. And I, I also know you're afraid of snakes. So, Katie, um, I'm no, afraid I'm of snakes. I'm just, that was a joke, comedy bit. Afraid of uh, sex or snakes? <laughs> snakes. Although Freud would find it significant yeah. that you thought I'm I said not sex. Afraid of snakes. <laughs> no, 100% joke. Um, you also included social media in that. And there's something about this echo chamber. I, I remember two things came to mind. One, I was just very, very fortunate, and my heart literally breaks. Uh, that we can't all be given this gift is like around seven, eight, nine, ten. I was like, comedy, right? Like, you're, like I, I like comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't occur to me later that you could make a living at it, yeah. but it was a value, right. and it meant more to me than it should. Right. And that is such such a gift. And and then you talk about my wound and my need, and we've we've already covered that in the beginning. And then you go like, oh, I found my calling. But you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, being quiet enough and being clear enough that you can actually hear, I'm going to use religious language, your God-given purpose. But what the fuck? I'm actually mad. (laughs) What the fuck? How can we do that when all we're doing is looking at hundreds of other people's lives on Instagram, just scrolling through? I actually think there's something not only unnatural, but borderline wrong about snapshots when we used to be in tribes of like 50 nomadic tribes moving around, helping each other, never alone. Now we're always alone. And you're looking at how many people do you follow? 300,000 snapshots of these lives. 
how are you going to hear that voice? Would you, are you a proponent of backing off? How do you cultivate that space? Well, um, yeah, very much a proponent of backing off. But, you know, if you're just like preaching to people like, you, you know, you're Moses on a mountain, they're just going to tune you out because it goes in one ear and out the other. So I'm very wary of being sort of this ranting older guy. In, I hate to say it, I'm in my 60s now, who's telling, <laughs> people how, who's telling people how they should behave because it has no effect on them. Mm-hmm. So you have to want it. You have to reach a point where it kind of disgusts you. You have to reach a point personally and not listening to somebody on a podcast. You need a rock bottom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You need to say, this isn't good for me. And, you know, if you have ambition, and most people who do attain success kind of are aware of this, you have to listen to yourself. You have to, sometimes you have to be um, uh, strong enough and courageous enough to be alone Mm. To be quiet, as you say, quiet's a very good quality. Because I think the metaphor of the voice is is, is extremely appropriate. So um, the, the psychologist um, Abraham Maslow, he called it, um, uh, I just forgot what the word was. Mm. Sorry, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> um, this is sort of a voice inside of you that tells you, what you like and what you don't like. And when you're a child and you're three or four years old, that voice is very strong, right? Mm. And um, I give examples in mastery of, you know, Einstein hearing that voice when he's three or four, of Martha Graham hearing it, the great dancer, when she's like 14, of Steve Jobs hearing it when he's seven, of Tiger Woods when he's like two, mm. okay? And it could be later in life. But it's, it's so strong, you want it so badly that as you get older and you hear other people, yeah, you're distracted from it a little bit here and there when you're 15, 16, you're in high school, but it comes back, it keeps coming back because it's so strong, you want it so badly. Nothing will drown it out, right? Mm. You're not going to let people influence you because you know you, you want this so badly that it's going to make you miserable, right? And I knew from early age I wanted to be a writer, right? Seven, eight years old. And... Sometimes people would, would um, discourage me from that. My parents would say, well, you've got to go to law school or med school, typical Jewish parents type scenario. Or uh, an editor once told me when I was 25, Robert, you're, you're never going to make it as a writer. You're too undisciplined. Your writing's all over the place. You really need to go to business school. Just give it up, you know? Hmm. And, you know, my first reaction is, fuck you. <laughs> you're wrong. You're older. You're wrong. You're an asshole. You're envious of me. <laughs> fuck you. Right? Because I knew if I listened to him, I'd be miserable. So that voice is very strong. But when you have 300,000 voices in your ear every day on social media telling you this is the cool thing that I'm doing, look at me vacationing in Tahiti and I did it because I'm an influencer. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to be an influencer? Mm -hmm. When that becomes your whole life, that's like the wall, that's like what your brain is lined with. Then how are you the ever going to... wallpaper gonna... in your brain. Yeah. Wow. Good image. <laughs> came up with I love it. Um, then there's no cho- chance that you're ever going to hear that voice, right? Yeah. It's too drowned out. Unless, and a lot of people write me because of my book, Mastery, and I make it very plain. I call it your life's task. If you don't find your life's task, you're never going to make it in life. Never. Mm. You might go to law school and make money and stuff, but you're going to be unhappy and you're not going to be a great lawyer because it's not you. So you, this is the most important thing in your life. People write to me in their 30s and their 40s. I can't find it. Where is it? 
that frustration and that upsetness is actually the best thing because they know that they're on the wrong path. Right. And you can only reach it as an individual. So all the yelling and ranting and, and par- parenting and stuff won't do any good unless it, people want it. It's not a substitute for your own broken heart, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's really interesting. There Again, I'm thinking of Iron John. I'm reading the book Iron John right now. Is this Robert Bly? Yeah, Robert Bly. Yeah. Real quick, just to bring everybody up to speed, there's a wild man in a cage, and he's in the courtyard of the castle, and the little boy um, loses his ball, and the ball represents your innocence. It's like your light, right. um, your joy, your this thing that we envy about children. You lose it around seven or eight. Yeah. The ball rolls into the cage with Iron John, this very hairy, oh, wow. sort of like monster. He's not a monster, but he's wild. Right. And he says, I'll give you the ball back, um, but you have to let me out. Where is the key? It's under your mother's pillow, <laughs> which Robert points out. It's where your mom and dad have sex. So this is a very private sort of Freudian yeah. implication of going in your parents' room and stealing a key. Yeah. Also, it has to be stolen. He said he would run these men's retreats and they're like, can't you negotiate with your mother? <laughs> and he's like, if you don't steal the key, uh-huh. you're not worthy of the key. Right. You have to steal the key. Right. Like you have to find that, like you're saying that, fuck, ah, fuck you, I'm not a writer. Like you have to steal the key. Yeah. And it's also where your mother dreams. It's the pillow. Oh, wow. And no mother dreams of having a wild man. Wow. Like they dream of doctors and lawyers. Uh-huh. You steal the key. <laughs> Fuck you! You steal the key, yeah. and and so he would have these wild dances or or men's retreats, like right, right. coverage, like wild stuff, drum circles, yapping, yelling, whatever. And men would say, like, I got some of my key back last night. Right, They're looking right. for that thing. But all of this comes from quiet. It's like it's like from journaling. It's from solitude. It's from right. I, I, I'm just like. Look, I am being Moses on the mountain. Maybe I'm right. I'm not as wise as you yet. I'm I'm still yelling into the void, going like, "Don't you see? Don't no, you no, see?" There's, there's value to yelling into yep. the void. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you were just yelling into the void. void. <laughs> yeah, no one heard that. No one heard that, Robert. Uh, there's value to yelling into the void because yeah. it can wake people up. To, yeah. It triggered the thing where you know, so people are unhappy. It's like our great secret. Nobody wants to admit it. Mm. But most people are genuinely unhappy. Mm. But they don't want to admit it. They don't want to look in the mirror. They don't want to face it. So for you or somebody to say, yes, your life isn't going the direction that you want. Think about that. That could be a trigger to some kind of process that we're talking about here. It reminds me of Fight Club. Did you see Fight Club? Yeah, sure. Remember that that movie was such a phenomenon. Yeah. And I think it was... That character, Tyler Durden, it was the person that was like, your life sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, right. and, and you're mad. Yeah. I'm interested though, like anger, I don't know. It seems, I'm not putting it down. Anger has its place, but there's, there's, there's more underneath that. There's more going on. My Val, who you met briefly, she's really oh. helped me uncover like, there's sadness there too. And, and there's- In anger. And shame. And, and there, there's just these like- In anger. L- it, beneath it like anger is is sort of the appetizer like you insult me and i'm mad and we usually stop there i was just watching the sopranos movie i'm like that's that's what it is i'm gonna fucking kill you and we like it it's part of the western mythology we like kicking ass i'm gonna blow you up but underneath it there's shame that you're right you offended me but you're Right, right. right right there's sadness that they're right yeah there's sadness that you're not that everybody doesn't love you 
you are the the kid with dog shit on a shoe in the circle in second grade. That's me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like um, you're brought back to these feelings. Yeah. And anger is. I don't mean to call it cheap, but it's not the full picture. Any thoughts? Well, yeah. Um, so you know, we just use words. I, I hate to to get so meta here, but um, the these stage. are just You're in a good place for this. <laughs> okay, these are just words yeah. for emotions, and and emotions can't be cap captured by words, right? Yes. And so we put simple tags on it: anger, sadness, love, blah 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 blah. But they're not the reality. The truth is, our moods and. Uh, uh, um, emotions are kind of a physical thing. They're physiological. Mm. So certain chemicals are released in our body that anger particularly is like a hormone that goes into our chest and creates this anger response. Mm. And they're constantly changing and shifting from one moment in a space of 30 seconds, you feel anger, then you feel excitement, then you feel fear, then you feel pain. Mm. <clears throat> Emotion is never singular. It's never one thing. It's never pure. It's a mix. It's a combination. Mm. <clears throat> so anger for sure is like that. But, you know, the thing is, what I tell people is you don't know. So the, the point here is you don't know what the source of your emotions are. You have no access to them. When you feel something, you are just feeling the results of it. Mm. But you don't know really what triggered it. And oftentimes, if you're angry at somebody, like in your office, etc., you're not really aware that it actually comes from something you heard the day before or something you read in a book or something that your parents told you 30-some years ago, that's right? right? Yes, is really what's underneath it. And it. you have no access to it. And admit, and as you say, mixed in with that anger is is shame and something your parents said that pissed you off mm. and, and, and self-loathing and low self-esteem and frustration yes. and despair. Yes. It's all underneath, but you have no access to it because you're just listening to the simple little single label anger. And it's kind of, um, we're, we're chemical creatures. I've been reading a book recently. I'm writing a new book. Um, and this guy was trying to say that um, we're these biochemical animals, right? And um, so when we feel anger, there's a rush of adrenaline. It's like the priming in us. Mm. And it's addictive like any kind of drug. Mm. And the sense of just acting on our anger is much more satisfying than sitting back and going into your room and going, now why am I angry? <laughs> what is it, you know? The Sopranos would not have been a hit show if Tony no, went no. back to his room and went, what am I really mad about? Although that's kind of what the therapy was. Yeah, so right, I'm exactly. Wrong. exactly. Yeah, it was both. Yeah. Yeah, keep going, yes. No, so... Um, you know, there's much more payoff from acting on your anger yeah. and going out and punching someone yeah. or yelling or getting on the internet and being a troll or something, you know, getting, mm. venting it than in going through this process. Mm. But what happens is you become an addict, you become addicted to it, which is anger can become an addiction. Wow. And, and it's not just the kind of anger that we think about where you, you act on it. It's anger that's always just sitting in you, mm. that you don't act on. You're angry about the world. You're angry about your boss. You're angry about your wife. And it's just kind of obsessing you. And it's addicting because it kind of satisfies this sort of primal need, these kind of hormones th flowing through it's you. It's adrenalizing. Yeah, you need it. You have to feel anger. Yeah. And a lot of the kind of social justice warrior type and the rage phenomenon that we're seeing now is to me a deep sign of this kind of 
biochemical addiction that people have. It's really interesting because uh, as a writer, maybe you can relate. I, I used to chew nicotine gum, even though I never smoked in my life. And everything you're saying about anger, that's what it does to you, to me. It like incites you. Really? And I think it's really interesting. Nicotine gum? Yeah, caffeine and nicotine, especially wow. together, almost put you in a state of adrenalized right. um, fight, flight. Like, it, it wakes you up. Right. I'm not promoting it. The reason I quit it was... It. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there's you'll do it and you'll go like, oh, this is why Hemingway... Uh, smoke cigars you know what i mean like yeah. and i know that's dangerous for you because you love Hemingway, but like <laughs> who doesn't but <clears throat> you you're you realize that sometimes sitting in a chair is the opposite of going out and like yeah putting your fist through a wall and you chew on this on nicorette and you're like ah, and your fingers start going like crazy wow. yeah i'm gonna get you early deadline yeah, on this <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well i'll give you the full picture though what i don't like about it is people talk about addiction but and I, I used to, when I would chew the gum, I'd go. Addiction just means awesome. <laughs> like that's that was my understanding. Addiction just means it's so good that once you start it, you don't want to stop. Right. And that's actually not true. Your brain is bending over backwards to reorganize itself right. to prioritize getting it. Right. And that felt like too much manipulation. Right. Uh, and that's why. And that's why I ultimately um, quit. Uh, anyway, all that to say, I loved what you just said. I'm very into it. And, uh, and I don't know what to say now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I don't know if this is a good segue or not, but uh, as somebody, I, I meditate every morning, yes. uh, confessing that, you know, um, been doing it, you know, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not Buddhist. You're Buddhist. I'm, I'm Zenish. Or Zenish. Zewish. Yeah, Zewish. <laughs> There's got to be a Zen Jewish, Zen Zenuish, Zen Yentl, Zentl. You're a Zentl. There you go. Um, I'm Zentl. You're a Zentl, which sounds like a delicious soup. <laughs> I I want to talk about this. Keep going, please. No, so um, you know, as when I meditate, and I've been doing this for like twelve years now, religiously every every morning. Mm. Um, as I go through this, you become very self-aware. So just imagine you're sitting there. I'm now up to like 45 minutes in the morning, mm-hmm. and you're not doing anything. You're just sitting, mm-hmm. and you know your, your mind is racing like crazy. It's particularly in the when I had first beginning, you know, mm-hmm. you have no control over it. It is fucking hard to sit still for that long of time and just just let your mind be at rest. Mm-hmm. But what comes to me so many of the time are these thoughts will pop up without you knowing where they come from, right? And then, like, what the hell? Why that memory come up? Why Why am I chewing over that old, you know, something somebody said like three years ago? And then you start becoming aware that you're addicted, that these things are happening because you're programmed. You like so, it. when something happens to you, your brain operates by through repetition. So, like, you have a thought. And it kind of creates a neural pathway in your brain, a connection. And then you think it a second time, and you think it a third time, it's going to keep coming back and back because the brain operates by repetition. Mm-hmm. It's how we learn language. It's how we learn how to speak. It's how we learn anything, mm. right? And so your mind is so easily programmed in ways that you're not even aware of. And anger is one of the programs. And resentment is one of the programs. And you're doing it to yourself. Mm. And what I can't understand when I'm meditating is there are these moments where, you know, it all kind of clicks together and you realize, no, 
It's pretty wonderful to be alive. Everything is kind of easy and natural. The present moment is wonderful. And if these thoughts keep popping up, it's like I'm trying to hurt myself. I'm trying to destroy myself. Yeah. Why? Where does yeah. that come from? I mean, you want my answer? Yeah. Your ego, which of course is just an abstraction, it's yeah. a construct, uh, develops its own will. This is just an idea. Let's just No, no, I think it's great. It develops its own will, but it knows it's not real. And yeah. it would rather kill you yeah. and be real yeah. than have you be at peace and dissolve. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're sitting in my meditation spot. That's that's the good juju right there. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On this couch? Yeah, I sit right there. That's where I meditate. Uh-huh. And I, it's, it's where I actually intended on starting this conversation uh-huh. because... And I love this, by the way. I think this is beautiful. This is what life is. We have the different altitudes we can fly at, right? We have the body. We have the mind. We have the id, the ego, the super. We have all this stuff going on. And when Ryan, our friend Ryan Holiday, suggested you, I was like, this is really interesting. Was Ryan sitting here? Ryan sat there. He's done the podcast twice. He sat there twice. He uh, he was like, okay, so Robert is, is, I look you up, you're Buddhist. And you're into, the internet would like to have me believe you're the seduction guy and you're the power guy. So my first question was going to be, there's a lot of like very serious photos of you and compilations on YouTube of like, of, of the sexy stuff, the juicy stuff, you know, seduction. Robert's going to tell us how to seduce. He's going to tell us how to bend people towards. And I was like, kind of all I want to talk about, although that's not true. I've enjoyed every moment is then we have meditation. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. So you sit and do something for 45 minutes where the point is you can't really be that good at it. The point is this never-ending cycle of forgiveness. The mind shows up and you love it and you say yes to it and you say, I I see you, darling. You're gentle. And, And the flowing, and I have reminders that come up on my phone. One of them is, Thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. Yeah. These yes, thank you. I, I get out of my old cold plunge there, and I go yes, thank you. It's the best part of my day. Cold yes, plunge. thank you. Yeah, right there. Yes, thank you. Put my arms up to the sky all day. Yes, thank you. No resistance. No resistance. No resistance. And you're talking to a brother. I'm your brother. Yeah. And I'm obsessed with winning over a room and selling a show <laughs> and all this stuff. That's comedian, yeah. Right. And at the same time. So I'd love to hear about that, like your your meditation practice, your your Buddhist practice, your your understanding that it's all sort of nothing, not a bad nothing, but just sort of like a dance, uh, a play, and this very human altitude that you also fly out. What's the relationship between your Buddhism and your, I'm going to say it in a beautiful way, your other side, your professional persona? Well, it's definitely there. Because, you know, we're complete beings, and so um, it's not like I can have these separate compartments with little doors on them. <laughs> Everything is, is interconnected, right? Mm. So it informs, the, the Zen idea informs all of my books to some degree. Mm. So in the 48 Laws of Power, I'm trying to instill in you this idea that nothing is personal, right? Mm. You're in this game of power it's like a chess game that you're playing in, in the social world and doesn't and somebody says something nasty it's not about you it's not personal right divorce your emotions from the situation and just look at things the way they are wow. right like wake Anal- up huh like wake up yeah yeah like analyze it with some level of detachment it's not about you it's not about your ego these are games that are being played these are moves being made on the chessboard 
and just have that kind and that's as definitely a zen quality zen isn't necessarily applied to that i understand although in the samurai era that they loved um zen buddhism for the concentration it gave them the ability to detach and great samurai warriors were, were zen practitioners so there is not that great of a gap mm. and in the art of seduction i have something similar to that but it's more like what makes most people bad seducers and, and most people are you know minor league seducers is um they're too self-involved they're constantly thinking about themselves. So <clears throat> they'll be in a situation, and they're not, you're never aware of that. You're in a situation where there's this woman that you're interested in, and there's an internal dialogue going, and you think that you're like genuine, that you want her, and that you have something to offer her. But the, inter- the dialogue going on in your head is, does she like me? Mm. Am I saying something that, is gon- that she's going to approve of? What if she doesn't like me? What can I say that will make her like me. It's all about you, 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 and you're all so internal focused. Mm. And I'm trying to say you have to flip that around. You have to stop hearing yourself talk about yourself and just and just absorb yourself in her mentality. Mm. What is it like to be her? You know, which is not easy for a man, but you can cross gender boundaries. Mm. And it's very powerful. Mm. What is it like to be her? What is going on in her head? What is her spirit like? What is she feeling in this moment? Not what I'm feeling, not my insecurities, her insecurities, her vulnerabilities, her weakness. And the ability to get outside of your ego and absorb yourself in another person is another Zen quality to a degree, the kind of egoless way of looking, and empathy, which is a very uh, precept in, in Zen Buddhism. So these are, they're in there. Mm-hmm. And I could go on and on and on about it. And, and my war book, you know, it's war, but it's it's suffused with Zen Buddhism and the samurai ethic mm. and Sun Tzu and Asian philosophy, etc. It's more of an Asian way of kind of looking at things. The, the other thing is, in the 48 Laws of Power, I say, all right, I've just given you this law. Now, at the very end, I say, don't listen to this law. It's wrong. Here are situations when you want to do the exact opposite. Mm. And the last law of the 48 Laws is assume formlessness. Disregard all 47 of the chapters you've read beforehand. They're bullshit. Just be formless, right? Mm. And Like water. It, yeah. So it's in all of my books because mm. it's me. It's something that's been in me from since I was a child. That's how I feel about my comedy. You can't read all these books on blah, blah, blah and not have it kind of yeah. come through. But yeah. you don't do it on purpose. No. Because no. then you're Moses. Yeah, in our, our fake Moses example. No, no, it's true. If I if I wrote a book about Zen Buddhism, it would be the worst book I ever wrote. Nobody would read it. Yeah. So it, it's, it's no, you got to trick them. Yeah, it's uh, Ramana Maharshi said, "I give people what they want, so they'll want what I give." Oh, and he says nice. that in regards to miracles. There are all these oh. great miracle stories about Ramana Maharshi, and but really, what he was saying was so unsexy. I yeah. think it's very sexy, but he, it's so like not what people want to hear. What was he saying? He he was basically non non duality, saying uh, uh-huh. who you really are is a, is awareness. Yeah. So it's dropping of all of your story and all of the yeah, bullshit, yeah. and just being like, you are that which knows your experience, and that's everybody, and it's very impersonal. But uh, but what? Who wouldn't want that? I mean, I want it. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I, I I hope I'm not deluding myself. I'm aware that I may be. Um, I certainly love the rush of my life and and certain experiences, but there's when I can really get into that space, 
this is Rupert Spira. He says this like you are made of peace, you are made of happiness, and and you're made of love. And that's not just like romantic love. It's like you're made of yes is a yeah. better way of putting it. Yeah, you're this all allowing blank slate that yeah. is reality. Yeah, and like. So God isn't somewhere else looking at us and going like, I like Robert. Robert, God is the substance of everything that you've yeah. ever done, felt good, bad, yeah. ugly, selfish, beautiful, compassionate. Yeah. That is the, the fucking most exciting yes there could be. Yeah. It's a love that offends the human temperament. Yeah. We would rather God hate certain things. Yeah, yeah. But it's so... Uh, ubiquitous and so generous that it actually would offend us when you really think about sure, just sure. how much yes, how exact yes God is. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, go on. No, just one thing, though. I mean, I have to admit that that there is a doubleness to me. So, um, you know, this is the, if the theme of your podcast is confession. Yeah. Um, which seems like it, you know, <laughs> to go back to your childhood vocation yes um yes <laughs> um, you know there's a split in me that i have to acknowledge the split of the kind of serene guy who who's then like and the kind of ambitious angry yeah. person who's kind of interested in power as a phenomenon yeah. and who's supposed to be this sweet little pleasant little jewish boy mm. who's actually teeming with all these kind of dark desires etc and i put them into my books yeah. So there is a bit of a split that I cannot deny. This is why I said you're my brother. Oh. I mean, I get up on stage and this is where yeah. I let out all of my anger and I let out all this stuff. Yeah. I shock myself. Yeah. But it's a great save line. If you go like, if you're offended, I'm offended too. Like, I'm also here. Like yeah. I just offended myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like because I don't yeah. know where this shit is coming from. Where yeah. did we get this delusion that we're in control of what we think and yeah. what we feel all of the time? Oh yeah. And you you were alluding to the fact that culture is getting to a point where we need the extremes like Eminem. I always go to Maria Abramovich too, like performance art. Like there's a craving for someone just, you walk in the room, it's all white and they're shitting in a bucket. You know, Is that really? No, not really. But I'm just saying like the 60s performance art. We were getting so polite. And I grew up religious. I'm like, culture is just sort of catching up to the church culture that I grew up in, where we're all smiling and wearing khakis and acting like we don't fucking hate everybody. You know what I mean? Were you Catholic? No, Protestant. <clears throat> but And I'm not saying Christians are more hateful than everybody. I'm saying everybody deals with their darkness. Sure. And what we're learning, I think, is that putting a, a coat of paint on a pile of shit doesn't stop it from smelling. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I can still smell the shit. Here, here's, I, as my brother, as someone, I, I relate hard to the split. Because yeah. there's, I'll give you an example that embarrasses me, and I'd love to hear your analysis. Um, Val and I were at the Ojai Valley Inn, which is a... a I know. I know Ojai Valley Inn. Love Ojai Valley Inn. Love it, love it, love it. And I... Wait, the Ojai Valley Inn. Um, so we go, we go to the... Uh, the oh God. Uh, this, the iguana, the blue iguana and the other iguana. In there the Ojai Valley... <laughs> in, in Ojai. Oh, I don't know these iguanas. Yeah, they're, they're two really nice. But the Ojai Valley Inn, it's like an older, smaller... I wouldn't call it small. It's it's like a golf course. Oh, that place. Yeah. Oh, with the spa and everything. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, I know that. It's place. swank. Well, here's yeah, we here's, eat there and we'd go to the swimming pool. Yeah, I know there that. There you go. Okay, Get massages. So, well, I think you're going to be interested in this. So this right. is not just my indulgence. I really am saying this to okay. load you up. Okay. 
There's a there's something that happens when you go to a place like the Ojai Valley Inn. Sure. That's what hospitality is, is they're making, they're awakening in you the part of you that feels uh, special yeah. and uh, worthy. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's what it is. When they greet you, the room, everything is like, you're special, you're worthy. You really are who your mother said you were. Like, that's yeah. the subtext. Yeah. So Val and I are there. We've been there many, 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 many times. We go there all the time. And we walk into the restaurant. It's 5.30 because we eat early because we have a kid and we're just so tired. Yeah. We walk into the restaurant. It is absolutely empty. I can't wait to hear what you say about this. It's yeah. absolutely empty. And especially when I'm in Ojai, I'm reading my Rupert Spira, non-duality. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm meditating more. I'm Do like, you go to Krishnamurti Center? I've been. I love it. Yeah. Love all. He was a non-dualist as well. Yeah. But like, just, I'm there. I, I'm in my heart. I'm yeah. open. I walk into the restaurant. And for some reason, you want to talk about 95% of our behavior is unconscious. Who knows what's going on here? Yeah. Restaurant's completely empty. It's empty. I look to Katie. Katie, it's empty. And I've taken some of the bait. I'm believing the, my own press that I am special because the whole hotel experience <laughs> yeah, is making yeah, me yeah. believe that I'm special. Yeah. So we're walking in. I go, hi, uh, we're two walking in for dinner. It's five fucking 30, guys. Should be no problem. Yeah. And the very sweet, very nice uh, uh, Mater D says, I'm sorry, we're flow. Full? Full. <laughs> and I know that restaurant. It's huge. Yes, it's huge. And it's 5.30. Yeah. And it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, full Chandler. I go, from friends. I go, really? <laughs> yeah. And Robert, when I tell you, Val and I, then we walked down the street to the pub that doesn't need reservation. And we had a lovely dinner. And most of that dinner, we talked about how embarrassed I was and how, like, at odds I was. Here I am in the land of Krishnamurti. Yeah. Here I am meditating. <laughs> and I run into one slight inconvenience. Yeah. And I go full my comedian persona. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? And if I had followed it, I would have been like, you're telling me in one hour, every table is going to be full. <laughs> every table. Yeah. And really, if, I, if you want to hear the yeah. full thing is I'm like, I'm going to come back at 6.30. Mm -hmm. And if every table isn't full... Like, this is ugly. This is the guy from White Lotus. This is the, I don't know if you watch that show. Yeah. There's the asshole character. I have that asshole. We all have that sure asshole that sure wants do. to go, I'm going to come back at 630 because it's only going to take us an hour. Yeah. It's the Larry David in you. It is. <laughs> it, and that's why we love Larry David. He goes, really? Pretty sure it's going to be full. It's going to be full in one hour. And buddy, we had a lovely dinner and Val, Val joked. She was like, are you going to walk by the restaurant? I was like, no, because I don't want to be right. I also have a strong feeling that I would be right. Yeah. But like, tell me everything that that brings to mind. I, I was ashamed and I was, there's a part of me that was right. Larry David is an yeah. asshole and he's right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's the great line from the Big Lebowski. You're not wrong. You're just an asshole. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's how I felt. I was this close. If I did go back, it would have been to apologize. But I actually think that would have been making it more well, about me. Uh, the thing I don't understand is, moment. I mean, do you think he was offended? It was a young lady, first of all. But, oh, young uh, lady. Uh, I don't think she was offended, but I was the ugly rich guy that was like, you're telling me. <laughs> all I said was really, but the really you know, was loaded. <laughs> well, well, you know, 
Well, you know when people have moments like that, and I have moments like that, of I'm course. I'm embarrassed to admit, I'm embarrassed right now, but I'm also okay with myself. Yeah, I, I have that as well, you yeah. know, like when I'm driving in LA, my my inner asshole comes out, when, Oh yeah, you know, all the time. I yell, tuck in all the time, when people <laughs> are in the left lane, and then they go into the left turn lane, but they leave their ass in the lane. Oh, I'm yeah. like, you were just in this lane. <laughs> yeah. I always go, you were just one of us, yeah. one of the forward going people, and how quickly you've forgotten your people, yeah. now that you're a left person you forgot the straight people shame on you do you actually yell at them well i'll do it as a bit if val's in the car but i will say tuck in with full rage and they hear it no 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 oh yeah windows up tuck in i like that. tuck in tuck your fucking ass in yeah this lazy half in the left turn lane half in my lane wake up i know i know i get that i'm exactly that as well yeah so we all go we all have that and i'm sure i have ones if I really thought about it, that are even uglier than your the one that you sure, just confessed sure. to. Yeah. But what I'd like to say is, when those things happen, our first reaction is, "That's not me. Something came over me." And you hear this a lot with celebrities, you know, like Will Smith or something like that. I mean, he he gave a full throated apology. I don't mean to yeah. say that he didn't. But the first thing is, that wasn't who I am. That's not me. Something came over me, you know? It just Dr. happened. Jekyll, yeah. And I tell telling people, no, that is exactly who you are. Mm. So when you said, really, <laughs> there was a part of you that's, that's actually very real, mm-hmm. that you've been trying to hold and repress for so many that it came, decades. It came out, yeah. yeah, and it came out. Yeah. And it's actually not like a mistake. It's not actually something that just, you know, you're ashamed of that only happened once. Something you felt many times and you maybe acted on before, and it's actually very authentic. And when you have moments like that, you need to look in the mirror and say, this is a part of me. This is who I am. I have that rich guy, you know, entitled mentality tucked away somewhere in my inner closets, in my darkest drawers, and it came out. Yes. As opposed to the false little... Oh, that's not me. Yeah. That's not who I am. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I, I do believe, and I'm bigging up Val, not myself, she would be like, that is, it's okay. That is part of you. Yeah. But you're embarrassed. She always says, it's not the feeling, it's the shame that you had the feeling. Yeah. Which she got from Tara Brock, yeah. who's amazing. Yeah. And, and it was the shame. Because of course, the first thing I want to do in this situation is find another comedian and yeah. be like, you like get on like we were just laughing get on a tear you're telling me every table's gonna be full we all know that that voice actually in certain situations i didn't say any of that to the mater dc i'm still defensive or afraid we all know that that voice in some situations is the right voice you're telling me there are enough rescue boats for everybody you know what i'm saying sometimes we need (laughs) that sword it's a double-sided sword. Sure, it cuts sure. us sometimes and embarrasses sure. us, but sometimes it saves lives. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, or, yeah. or it saves situations yeah. or it rescues a bad birthday party. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you need the guy. Yeah. I've had the friend that goes, really, really? You can't get the bouncy house here for Leela? <laughs> you're telling me you're not standing next to three bouncy houses? Like, that is, it's a big part of what Iron John is about is like, masculinity and i'm I, I women can have this energy as well i'm talking about masculine energy i'm talking about decisiveness don't be i'm fine with those words yeah, there you go <laughs> i'm doing it for the audience not for okay. you Robert. okay okay uh is also something to be celebrated it has its place has yeah. its time and really i'm i'm just loving this really energy yeah 
it, we don't have to be ashamed. And sometimes it's exactly what we needed. Yeah. Really, you don't have a car with seatbelts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we need that. I've I've been with Val. Val's gotten so much stronger in her own voice, but they bring her the risotto and she ordered the salmon and it's just like, <laughs> she didn't order that. You know what I mean? Like sometimes yeah. you need right. that pol- with kindness, but like... Well, I know like personally, and hopefully my mom hasn't made it this far into oh, the podcast. Oh, she's long asleep. Okay. <laughs> Next to the old timey radio. Sometimes she's she from the generation that she tells the waiter exactly what my mom she too. thinks. You know, yeah. you're here to serve me, brother. And if I don't get what I want, I'm going to let you know. Yes. Yeah. And when you're a kid, you want to shrivel up and become like a little puddle I'm in the corner you, and not related. be there. We are related. <laughs> yeah. Every horrible family memory yeah. is at a, a restaurant. So, so we have double kind of shame about that. So if the risotto was brought instead of the salmon, my first reaction is, okay, it's risotto, that's fine. Yes. Because I don't want to be that person. I'm telling you, we're the same person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my mother would not only yeah. send it back, but make some point of it. Oh. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Horrible. Oh. Horrible. Yeah. And this goes back to one of the most interesting things I heard you talking about elsewhere is that 95% of our behavior is unconscious. And there's a built-in humility to that, is that we're just like, Pete, when you said really, I I can do it a little bit. I'm not going to flatter myself and say I can go into my unconscious, but I can say, you're not loving me. You're not giving me a table. You're not feeding me. My mom's breast has gone dry. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like, it's why is it so offensive? You're not... You're also emasculating me in front of my wife. Yeah. I'm fancy. Now I won't get an erection. That I'm not saying that's true, oh. but that's like the fear. Yeah. Like you now have power over me. You've you've belittled me. Yeah. Like this is why you see people flipping out is because they don't understand erection uh, loss fear. This this is certainly mine. I can see you uh, recoiling every time I say that. <laughs> I, th- I, I I didn't think... get the leap from erection loss, but okay. Well. That is where I go to. I, I remember on The Sopranos, there was a moment where Tony says to a character, it's okay that you're having sex with my ex-girlfriend. But then Tony doesn't really feel that way, barges in on them and beats the guy with a belt. Uh-huh. Very paternal. Yeah. Bad boy. And then four or five episodes later, that character who got beaten um, says he hasn't had an erection in four months since it happened. Uh-huh. And I'm like, Yeah. That's what it is. I used to have a bit about this. And again, I, I might be penile obsessed or something, but I'm like, guys that drive pickup trucks with wraparound Oakleys are trying to get a boner later. Like they're going around going like, I'm this guy, I'm this guy, I'm big truck, I'm big uh, truck, I'm uh, cool glasses, I'm cool yeah, glasses. Yeah. And guys like me are trying to get an erection by being like, I'm vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. It's all to uh, like big themselves up in whatever way seems to be working uh-huh. or getting them attention uh-huh. or love. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, so we're we're not... We're only dealing with men here, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, um, I, I I look at um, like how men will, you know, we've kind of become sort of embarrassed about the word masculinity, mm. as well as we were talking before about ambition and competitiveness, things that would probably more associated traditionally with men, which shouldn't be, I agree. You know, it crosses genders for sure. But masculinity is kind of an ugly word now. It's one of those words that has somehow become toxic, you know, to use the uh, verbiage today. Um, And so 
it's very awkward for men, I think, right? Because, um, you know, what, what is our role? I have this energy. I have testosterone. Mm. Testosterone is very real, as any man can attest to, right? It definitely flows through you. It definitely gives you anger. And I remember once I had, um, I had poison ivy, and I went to the doctor, and they prescribed me, um, I forget what the word is, but it's basically... Um, not, steroids. Yeah, steroids. Yeah. And I was on this for like two days, and man, I was turning in to, you know... You were the Hulk. I was the Hulk. That was exactly what I was thinking of. I turned into the Green Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Right? I was driving. I was like cutting people off. I was, fuck you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so it's very real. Yeah. You know, it's, and you don't really... It's chemical. It's yeah. chemical. You don't really control it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's very real, and it and it wells up in you sometimes, particularly when you're younger in your twenties, and it's and it's causing you to behave in a certain way, and yet the culture is telling you that these are all negative qualities. These are all something you should be kind of ashamed about, and maybe there are there are certainly negative qualities attached to it. I don't disagree, but there used to be a way for men to be kind of elegant with their testosterone, to kind of channel it in ways that were sort of noble and good, but also had an edge to it, and they could be aggressive, and they could... But there wasn't this sort of shame attached to it. And it's creating this kind of split in men that can be... I think will make them even worse, and yeah. make them even more violent, and make them even more... Um, Troubled. I agree. It's pushing the beach ball under the water. But I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. I want getting into your erection issue. Ah! Well, I don't have an erection issue. I am. Uh, I'm not implying that you do. <laughs> Far be it from me to say that you do. Um, yeah. Since I, I've I've lightened up on that. That used to be a bigger thing for me when I was dating because. To quote a friend of mine, although I don't think he wants me to quote this, but he said, there's nothing more awkward than kneeling on a stranger's bed, rolling on a condom. And I was just like, I really relate to that. <laughs> like when you're dating, when you're having sex with somebody, you don't really, you've been on a couple dates with them. Yeah. Like it's incredibly vulnerable. And it was times like that, that I got very interested in like how male performance was tied throughout your day uh. and how that might even be linked to the the Los oh. Angeles executive who's mad at the maitre d' who won't uh, give him a table. Uh, and I, I, I did also give the, the mother's milk going dry. There's lots of things potentially uh, going on. I see. But really, they're all love issues. They're yeah. like, I won't be accepted by my partner. I wasn't accepted by my mother. Yeah. I, I, or also, I might just die. Like, I really think there's part of us that goes like, you're denying me food, I think I might die. Yeah. Or you're denying my specialness. Well, so you're connecting the erection issue to the mater D thing? Yeah, because, because denying... Lost. Going into a restaurant with my wife, I'm not saying I felt this consciously. Going into a restaurant with my wife and I say, I'd like a table. What am I doing? I'm claiming a stake of land. Yeah. Give me land. Yeah. Give me a place. Yeah. Show me that I belong. Right. Show me that you respect... My voice, my right. face, my clothing, yeah. my money. Yeah. Give me a table and then bring me food. Yeah. And she says no. And you go, <laughs> your, oh. your weenie goes inside oh. your body. Oh. I'm not saying all of this is unconscious. Yeah. Uh, I guess I don't necessarily, this is where the, the brotherhood is severed. Slightly, not severed, but. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to sever it. <laughs> Not severing it, <laughs> but there's a slight divergence here because I don't 
really connect the loss of erection to to these kind of social situations although i'm sure there is but i mean personally yeah in my own experience i don't feel that shriveling up inside type thing when somebody i wouldn't say i do consciously either these yeah. are all hypothetical like how would either of us know did you watch the show severance i think you would like it no i i, I was told to watch it i should because it's about this is not a spoiler you go into your office and you're severed, meaning you can't remember your previous life and you're oh. above ground because it's in underground. You and I could work in this office, but when we go there, we have no memory of what happens there. Oh. And when we're in the office, we have no memory of what we do when we're oh, not in the office. Nice. So you're severed. And I was like, oh, this is a great, it fills a gap in our psychological vocabulary, meaning we need a way to understand our unconscious. Yeah. So what I'm saying, it's completely hypothetical, is in that severed place that I can't access, yeah. perhaps he has his feelings hurt in a sexual way when he's denied a table. Val and I, I don't have that problem like in real time. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so is she. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you're with your wife, so you're, there's also that element where you're trying to impress the woman, you know, that I you're mean, um, yeah. kind of thing. And... Maybe the rejection is making you in with her there, making you feel like you're not fully a man or something. This is the this is how I think. This is my own laws of power. I'm like, yeah. this is why men are the ones with their arms crossed at comedy shows. They don't want me to manipulate their chemistry. They don't want to laugh. They don't oh. want to. This is why Jack Reacher doesn't dance. Tough guys won't surrender to music and allow it to move their bodies. It's uh -huh. all to fuck later. Uh -huh. And to be the thing that fucks and not the thing that gets fucked is so much a part of our unconscious culture, if you wow. ask me. Wow. These are things I never really thought of before. It's very interesting. Well. I'm going to have to I'm, go home now and start the thinking new book, about this. The yeah. 48 Laws of Erection. <laughs> yeah. God, no. I hope not. And it's a, now with not. more Zen Buddhism. We should <laughs> deliberately try to write the worst book in the world for you. I, I had an idea, yeah. Like, I remember um, I, I worked in Hollywood for a while. Mm. And uh, I'm kind of, it's like, it's like admitting that I used to do pornography or something <laughs> um and you know i read scripts and stuff like that and i was fascinated by the worst scripts that would come in yeah i mean the absolute worst and i go can you imagine if this was ever filmed it would be the greatest comedy that ever happened right this is what's happening that's what the, <laughs> yeah. that's what the room is yeah. oh i didn't mean mainstream the room um we just discovered Val and I watch a guy, I forget his name, Neil something. Just go on YouTube and type in worst acting compilation. Oh. And watch all of the movies that oh. they're referencing because it's exactly what you're saying. Oh, yeah. The, the best, the worst written drama is the best in unintentional oh, comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're in. So I, I, I'm totally into that project if you ever wanted to do it. Yeah, the worst book that you could write. Yeah. Just, we'll call it Ruining My Name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, oh, go ahead. No, nothing. It's just something people don't know is I have a, a secret side to me, which was in the 90s. My wife and I, we, we did uh, theater together. We performed. Mm. And I would play a clown often. 
and I would dress up as a clown and I would do clown routines. And so I say, you know, if I really wanted to get rid of all of my followers, all of my audience, I'd have to reveal that side to me. I'd have to show up in the next podcast dressed as a clown with my clown voice, et cetera. (sighs) And that would be the end. You had a clown voice. Yeah. Give us a taste. No, it's a little bit like this. Like <laughs> talks, you know, kind of. But it's more than that, but it's kind of creepy. and Yes, of course. Well, I mean, maybe I am an unconscious weirdo, meaning I love these theories, but Adam McKay did this podcast and he told me that clowns are to help us laugh at our drunk dads <laughs> yeah. because they're always falling down. They have red, ready cheeks and red noses. Ah, Big floppy thought. shoes, I would say, is also something about dicks. That definitely um, is. Yeah, and, but they're always falling and it's uh-huh. a safe place to laugh at drunk dads. I have a joke about this. I go, but now so many dads don't drink alcohol, they smoke pot, which makes me think in the future, mimes will be very popular. (laughs) And it'll help us laugh at our stone dads. My dad thought he was stuck in a box for four days, (laughs) or whatever it might be. But I actually think there's truth to it. These, These things have these... And and clowns became less relevant potentially. Like I can't believe we're days. talking about clowns. You love talking about <laughs> clowns. Your aversion is actually a secret desire to bring back. What was your clown name? Um. Uh, God damn it. Uh, it was a typical clown name. I don't know why. I can't remember. It'll come to me at some point. All right. It'll. It'll. It be. ends with the. You know. It's like spotty or something. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> it was like one of the the clown. It was a clown name. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe that. It's all good. Well, we're um, about... Oh, we have to talk about the meaning of life. Let me just okay, look at... But I have a confession. Yeah. I have to pee really badly. You are welcome to pee. This is the perfect time to pee. The toilet. That yeah, shoots you back. high-tech plunger. Oh, yeah. We have the nitrous oxide or, or the... Wow. I was so impressed with the plunger. Yeah. Yeah. It's serious. Yeah. It's a little bit annoying because you have to find a cartridge... Like you have to the put plunger. a little, yeah. the plunger, the, the gun plunger. Oh. Yeah. And then there's one that you pump. That's the good one. Well, this is like blue. It had like a trigger on it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. That's the one that you pump and it gets real pressurized and then you Whoa. put it in there and water kind of flies wow, out. how yeah. exciting. It's, it is exciting, but it's serious. It's like yeah. when the regular one won't do, <laughs> get the gun. It's, it's, it's extreme. Do you want to hear my plunger story? Yes, of course. Are you sure? Here I am. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if we're at the end here. Or not. I don't want to end it on this. No, no. I will not make you close on the plunger story. <laughs> so I'm in New York. I'm staying at this this woman's house uh, in her one of her rooms that she rented out to me. She's a friend of mine. And she's having a party that night with all of her friends. And I'm on the downstairs part, and there's only one toilet there. And I go to the toilet, and it's by Sunday, like four in the afternoon. <laughs> And I need to plunge it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. There's no plunger in the house. <laughs> oh no. And I don't want to ask her. And yes. I'm looking and Shame. I'm looking. Shame. Shame. Yep. It's not anywhere to be found, so I have to go find one. So I'm going through the streets of New York on a Sunday at five in the afternoon looking for a hardware store. And like Twelve blocks away, I find one, you know, and <laughs> I buy it. But he, he doesn't have a bag or anything for it, so I have to walk through the streets of New York holding a plunger. <laughs> My friend Jay Larson has a joke about this where he goes, "When you go to a supermarket or something to buy a plunger, he's like, it's so embarrassing because everybody knows you got a situation at home. Shame, yeah. see." 
Yeah. That's it. It all worked out. It it all worked out, but only by like fifteen minutes because people were showing. Up. Of course, this is this is a classic comedy story. You had you had a clock on it. You yeah. had stakes. Yeah. Well, you know, this is almost it is an urban legend at this point. But I was told it by someone who said they knew it, as they all are. I might have. Okay, well, go ahead. You've probably heard this one. Well, I don't know. I have another. It's New York City. Uh huh. Guy oh. goes home with a young lady. Uh-huh. Actually, I believe it was a girl goes home with a young man. Okay. And in the morning, he leaves and goes to work. And she uh, gets up after him, sleeps in, writes a note that says, thanks for a great night, and her phone number. Uh, but then she realizes she has to go to the bathroom, so she goes and uh, makes a number two. <laughs> then uh, Horror of Horrors, she presses it. It's, it's not, not only it does not flush, it's just that empty, hollow, tink, 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 tink. <laughs> like, you know, it's not even... <laughs> Robert, you're dying. It's ding, ding. Nothing is happening. So this turd is just sitting in the toilet. So she's like, I can't just leave a turd in the toilet. Gets a, uh, finds a Ziploc bag. And just like you would pick up a doggy poop, she grabs it with the bag on her hand, inverts the bag, seals the bag. Then she, uh, she puts the turd on the counter. And then she gets all her stuff together. And then she uh, she leaves, and she realizes as the door's closing and locks <laughs> that she left the turd in the bag with the note that said, thanks for a great night. <laughs> like a paperweight. Like a pooperweight. It was just... And she just had to leave. What can you do? The guy comes home, and there's just a, a shit in a bag. Was there a second date? I, I'm assuming he called her and was, like, really into it. <laughs> like, if this was what this woman did on the first That's a date. Great story. Isn't that great? Yeah. And you know what? I don't know why it rings true to me. It, I have there's, another it, story like that, but I, I can't wait. No, I think I, I won't be able to tell it. It'll make me laugh too much. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you probably heard it's the Rowan Atkinson story. No, I don't think so. God, I have to like not laugh so hard. Try. He's he's going to some movie executive's house, like in Bel Air, to pitch a script, and he's got like his briefcase there. And this uh, is Mr. Bean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he has to go to the bathroom. He's led into the to the entranceway of the house, and he can't find it. There's no t- bathroom. He sees so he opens the door, and it's all dark, and he sees that there's a toilet. Somewhere there. And he goes, this is number two. (laughs) And then he realizes that this toilet isn't connected. (laughs) No. And, um, but he only, he only, sorry, before he realizes that, there's no toilet paper. (laughs) So he, (laughs) he, <laughs> so I had to c- no, he, he, he opens his briefcase and he uses his stationery. No, to put the poop in his briefcase. No, 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 to oh, wipe himself. Oh, to wipe himself. Okay, okay. <laughs> so now he realizes it's not connected. He has to leave, but he's left his name on there, you know, with the stationery, Ron oh. Atkinson, and he just runs away. You know, so this executive wake goes in that room and finds that Mr. Bean not only pooped in his his stage toilet, but left his business card on the poopy, basically. Similar to your story. Yes, yes. yes. 
I uh, <laughs> this is taking a turn I did not expect. But you know what, man? People uh, need these laughs. Sure, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it was just so nice to be the three of us laughing so hard. <laughs> so good. Now let, let's talk about the meaning of life. <laughs> I'll try. We can. Um, I mean, there's more things to talk. I, I I just encourage everybody to look up your work and your and your Google talks and all that stuff. There's there's so much more. So just consider this an introduction to Robert Greene, uh, with an E at the end of E, uh, a Green, I mean. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your framing of the universe. Obviously, Zen Buddhism. <laughs> we still have two poop stories echoing, <laughs> rattling around our brains. But do you have an understanding? I guess here's a way in. Do you think death is the end? Oh, boy. Yeah, simple questions, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I don't really have an answer for that. Some some questions, I I can't like say. You know, um, I'm very much somebody who believes like if I've experienced it, it's real to me. But I'm not going to be professing a f- belief or faith in something that's just intellectual or abstract. Yeah. I would like to believe that there was something afterwards, but I have no experience of it now. Three years ago, I, I nearly died. Oh, wow. I had a stroke. That's why I'm like this. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, if, if three seconds had gone differently, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Or I'd have such severe brain damage, I wouldn't be able to do this. Wow. Um, and I was in a coma, and I woke up from the coma, and like, what happened to me, you know? And what's going on here? I'm in a, I'm in a gurney, and there's nobody around, and I'm like freaking out. And I'm, I'm I'm yelling in Spanish, and I don't know why I'm yelling in Spanish. Whoa! Um, and you know, some strange thoughts are circling in my brain that like are what? probably like you know, I probably like I tasted death. Mm. You know, I had a little little sip of it, mm. right? And I had these sensations in my body that were probably me dying, and they kind of were embedded in like my bones and my muscles, and they sort of stayed lingered in there like hours and days later and i can kind of remember those sensations hmm. and um so it was not like a dress rehearsal huh dress rehearsal yeah well wow. well you know um i've studied a lot about near-death experiences because i write about that and i'm writing a book kind of a little bit on that subject right now and people have much more powerful near-death experiences than i do so i just had a, kind of like a minor one but i tasted it and um was it visual in any way well there were two things that happened one was it it, it wasn't visual it was physical corporeal um Mm. where i felt like um my bones were kind of melting dissolving from inside me Mm. and they were losing all of their boneness and um and you know i don't know what that means but that was kind of like the sensation of all the energy draining out of my body until I would become inorganic, you know. I'd, and um, and then I had a little bit of a vision of, like, my wife and my mother talking, and, like, I'm already dead, <laughs> and I'm kind of viewing them, and I'm sort of thinking, oh, it's okay. Everything goes, everything will be all right. It's okay. You know, this, you know, sort of thing. But yeah. that's about it. Um, wow. And, uh, but like a dissolving. Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. bringing you back to the bone feeling. Yeah. The 
it's silly. I am one of those people with, I guess you could say, the chutzpah to talk about things I couldn't possibly know because I haven't experienced them. But it's like the metaphor for death, for some reason, I've always gone to is like the sugar being stirred into iced tea. Yeah, yeah. Like a dissolving. Yeah. But you had a visceral experience. Yeah. Obviously, that's not what was happening, but that was your perception. It no, was like, it was what was happening. I was literally dying. Yeah, I but was... your bones weren't dissolving. But no. It was no. like the consciousness was leaving them and yeah. cooling elsewhere question mark yeah yeah i i don't know i i can't i can't verbalize it very well mm-hmm. and um the first hours of waking up were just like strange like what what world am i in mm. you know i don't i didn't know what had happened to me and there were feelings in my body that were very unusual i've never felt before you know, and then, you know, why was I screaming in Spanish? Don't ask me. You were having a senior moment. <laughs> yeah. <thank> you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so I don't know if uh, death is the end. I mean, I don't know. It's too big of a question for me. I have no answer for it. I'm agnostic on that. Mm. I'll wait. I'll, I'll tell you after I'm dead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> If I if I see uh, handwriting in the fog on my mirror, I'll yeah. know it's you. Although, although and you last... just write like "eat a dick," I'm like Robert. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> that's aggressive. Because yeah. we know which side of his personality wrote that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me what were no, you? No, no. Just last night, I had an old friend from uh, elementary school who went on to become like a, a rock star, and he died a couple years ago, and I was really upset about it because I was very. We were good friends growing up, and we reconnected later in life. And I really felt very close to him, like one of the few people. And last night, I dreamt about him. And sometimes I wonder, like, is he actually there in my dream? Is he is he like a presence? Is there something real about that? I don't know if it's true or not, but I have those questions. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, what... I had an experience on... Uh, I was on LSD... And I was imagining things. And I was like, but that's just my imagination. And this voice or this question came and it was like, but what is your imagination? Right. Like, what, it, what is the source of your imagination? Like, we, we dismiss our thoughts. Like, it was just in my head. <laughs> yeah. As if in my head is less real right. than the image of you. By right. the way, the image of you is also in my head. Like we could look at that neurologically and say right. that that's true. Right. We could also look at that from the non-dual perspective and right. be like, you are made of consciousness. We're back right. to the feelings. Right. Close your eyes and tell me what you're experiencing. You're experiencing sensations in different areas. But then we start pinching and going like, it's my body and right, it's you right, over right, there right. and it's the couch. But really, this couch is made of my experience of it touching and that's occurring in my head. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that too fast? Yeah. yeah. What I'm saying is that I vibe with that. And I actually think you have more authority on what happens after you die because you, in your essence, are the only thing that's happening. Does that make sense? You're made of being itself. The Jewish God, I am that I am. You are amness. Yeah. And I think maybe in your meditations when you explore, you can taste that unborn, never dying, impersonal. I Calling it a force is so woo-woo, but just amness uh, yeah. that pervades all things. And that, perhaps, uh-huh. is the voice of to your mother and your wife. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. 
Ramana Maharshi. We're back to him. He was dying. His followers said, you know, perform a miracle. Heal yourself. And he said, don't be silly. Where could I go? That's the voice of being. Right. Meaning the imagination you had of your friend. Yeah is your friend because there's only one thing happening right right. there's only one thing thinging itself and right now your friend is in your imagination as if your imagination is separate from your friend i agree i agree (laughs) with you i think that's very true and like the love you feel for your wife is the same love you feel for other things like that's what bob marley and those types are mean when they say one love yeah it's the same love we want to personalize it. i want to say the love i have for my daughter is yeah. different or unique but it's really the same love and when i die she will be able to find me not only looking out her eyes i don't just mean genetically but also in the love that she feels for her partner yeah. i will be present in that love yeah yeah because it's the, what it, well, we I, compartmentalize I we put the doors i definitely the agree and believe in all that yeah i like it um yeah and then Physically, um, I, I'm not. I don't want to be uh, cremated when it happens. I want to be buried, and you know, you become organic material again, mm. and you live in something else, and it goes on and on and on. Mm. There was this one um, famous biologist, entomologist, who who was dying, and he wanted to be buried in the Amazon, where these certain termites or um, what are those things that. Um, get into the body when you die and go through Lawyers? It. Huh? Lawyers? <laughs> maggots. Oh, maggots. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and they, they, they would like, they come at, but these are different and they come out of the body and then they turn into these winged creatures and oh. he was imagining that his body would then give birth to all of these insects because he loved insects. Wow. So he'd have this other kind of immortality. But, it, you know. In, That's a great idea. Yeah. But then the book I'm writing, which is about the sublime, um, you know, I talk about uh, how everything is interconnected and and it's even logical. So from the moment of the Big Bang, every little particle of energy is the same thing. It's it's inside of all of us. Mm -hmm. We're products of the Big Bang. Everything is interconnected. So um, what happened 13 billion years ago is living inside of your body right now. That's right. Right. That's right. And that singularity that erupted into the Big Bang contained the microphone you're holding. I don't mean literally, but it contained the building blocks for it. And for yeah. you. Yeah. And for me. Yeah. And my friend Rob Bell did a show and he, he got profound. He was like, he, it contained your grandmother's cancer. It contained your child's first haircut. Like yeah. it, it, it's, it was all there. Yeah. yeah. So even though uh, you and I might sound woo-woo talking about yeah. your imagination is your friend and is yeah. a, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's also a scientific backing. There was a point yeah. where there was an in, in, uh, in, unimaginably dense point of of matter right. that erupted, right? That first formed and then erupted. I mean, right. it's wild stuff. And then you know, like I mean, I, I mean, this is like the first chapter in the book, but the the, the formation of the first star, the very first star in the in the universe, it did happen at some point, mm-hmm. and kind of trace what that history was and imagining what it was what happened and then when it exploded it shot because of the intense heat on the inside it created all these new um elements mm. that became the building blocks of life mm-hmm. right you know hydrogen etc mm-hmm. and if that hadn't happened if things had if the universe had heated to a different degree 
it would have never occurred that way. So everything has occurred in this kind of fashion that leads to us being here talking in this moment is extremely unlikely, but it's all, you know, so bits of that first are exploding are for sure inside of you right now. Right, right. And we even see that in the ocean. There are all these other little metaphors. You put a drop of your blood in the ocean, you can find it in like a cup of water, like all these crazy things. Yeah. We see the interconnectedness yeah. of that. I, I I found out recently that all gold comes from supernovas and stuff. Like it, it's, yeah. it's interesting fascination with gold. It, what what it takes to make gold is incredibly rare. Yeah. The fact that it's beautiful to us and rare looking to us. Yeah. I love that stuff. I'm excited for this new book. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And the rest we don't know. We're you you maybe know this. There's a great Buddha quote. And I'm aware that 99% of Buddha quotes weren't actually Buddha quotes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, somebody said what happened when you die? What what happens to us when we yeah. die or or what is the meaning of life? One of those questions that you're beautifully humble enough to not to to give silence to. And he said, "What business is that of yours?" He said, you, it's like you got hit by an arrow in your leg. Get the arrow out of your leg. Don't waste time wondering who shot the arrow. Right. And, and I think there's something really beautiful, very, very practical about Buddhism. It's like you're suffering. Yeah. Let's right. deal with that. Right, exactly. Instead of going like, but what next? It's like just yeah. let's heal now because yeah. we're hurting now. Right. Let's look at that. It's yeah. Instead yeah. of navel-gazing. Yeah, well... Buddhism is very practical religion, which is kind of what attracts me because I'm sort of a practical guy. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm into it. I'm into it. Well, we know the hardest you've ever laughed because I think you did it on this podcast. I usually ask the guests. Oh, my, my wife is going to, she's going to love hearing about this because she knows how hard I laugh with bathroom humor. I mean, watching you laugh, you became a little boy. And it was really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I got to know you when you were eight, and I got yeah. to be myself when you I was You also eight. got to know my father, because he had the same weakness as Potty? I did. Potty yeah. humor? Beautiful. I mean, I like your dad already. <laughs> Everything I've heard about him has been great. Let's, um, let's end with one practical question instead of the hardest laugh question, because we already know the answer okay. to that. Tell me a little bit about your writing process, because, and I'd also like to know your why. This is a big question, but it's our last question. Why? Here's here's what I mean by your why. You can you can thread in how literally the ABCs of how you're writing all these books. I have the same question for Ryan. How are you doing this? Like, and and but even more so, why are you doing it? Uh, you've had six international bestsellers by rights. You seven seven. Excuse me. All right <laughs> there. You go seven. Forgive. Uh, you could. I'm assuming have a Mai Tai and, and uh, shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want you to. But why don't you? You know, like why? I told you I want to reduce suffering, restore connection, and give back what I've been given. What is, what is, what is your why um, to, to write this next book, to, to write your second book after your first book? Like, it's hard to, hard to manifest, manufacture that. Why? So which question am I answering first? It's dealer's choice. You're the guest, man. Okay. Um, well, I'll answer the second one first. Um, you know, there's there's something that uh, I wanted to communicate since I was very young, obviously. And um, I may not believe in an afterlife for sure, definitely, because I don't have that experience. But I definitely believe there's some something weird about fate 
or destiny. And um, so I have all these experiences growing up, which are not uncommon. I'm not saying I'm unusual, where I had bad experiences with bosses and friends and I had good experiences and all these things that I wanted to talk about and share because we're social animals. I want to communicate and I want to be a writer. And I tried all of these ways of writing and nothing quite clicked. It wasn't quite what I was meant to do. You know, journalism, Hollywood, theater, etc., etc., novels. And then I met a man who was like a book packager back in 1995 and he asked me if I had any ideas for a book. And I kind of, it was a, we were in Italy, and I kind of improvised. It was a beautiful day in Venice, and I kind of improvised what would turn into the 48 Laws of Power. Mm. And I just say that because it was like destiny. It was, everything just clicked at that moment. All of my experiences, all of my pain, all of my joys, everything I had studied, everything I had tried and failed at came into play, and it was meant to happen. And that meeting him was meant to happen and it all sort of fit into place and I was able to give voice to all the different parts of me in that book and then you know you want to keep communicating you want to keep it's kind of a high it's you know you've had years of me of frustration of pain of nobody paying any attention to me whatsoever and just thinking I'm this kind of loser guy in Hollywood that can't get a screenplay together and suddenly I get all this attention. So yeah, there's also that element. I'm, I love it. It's exciting to me. I feel validated and rich. I want more of it. Mm. But also, uh, I want to communicate other parts of me. So power expresses one part of me. The art of seduction is another part of me that's been lingering inside. It's a little voice saying, come on, come on, let me out, let me out. Mm. And and I let it out. And then I kind of go from from book to book that way. And it feels like I'm alive. So I'm, I'm right now, when I write, working on my next book, the moments that I get to work on my next book, I'm the happiest person on the planet. Hmm. Right? And um, That's a good sign. I, yeah. If I and, was your life coach, I'd be like, I think you found it, Robert. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And so I feel like I'm more real in my books than I am in real life, that, that, I, that this is who I am, this person who writes these books. Hmm. And... Um, and so the, the book I'm writing now, I meant to write 17 years ago on the sublime because it's a subject that fascinates me. And then I got derailed by the 50 cent book, then on and on and on. Mm. And then I nearly die. And the book, and sublime is about death. That's, that's the ultimate metaphor for it, mm. is look, peering into the, in, through the door of death. Why did that happen? Well, it's meant, I was meant for me to write this next book. So I have to write it. And then maybe after I write it, you know, I feel like, okay, I've written everything. I've communicated all those voices. Now maybe I can't have that Mai Tai mm. and go retire to a golf course somewhere. Mm. Oh, Ohio Valley Huh? Ohio Valley Oh, yeah, Ohio Valley Make a reservation. That's, yeah, a, okay, that's a tip okay. for me. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, just, I wouldn't be able, to, I wouldn't be happy I wouldn't be who I am if I wasn't like working on a book. And after I had my stroke and I was like so weak, I could I couldn't walk, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. You know, my mother and everyone's saying, "Just take it easy. Don't do anything else. Don't rush to another project because writing books is probably what led to my stroke." Mm. But damn it, right? 
three months later, I'm here out pitching a new book and selling it and working hard and becoming neurotic again because I can't help it because it gives me life a lot of pleasure. Yeah, it's like that's the why. It's like life. It's it's your force. It's it brings you. I know exactly what you mean. Those those rushes that feel like life, and I'm with you, and I think Ryan's with us too. uh, Ryan Holiday. I like writing. It, it's it's uh, it's a lot of the other stuff. It's getting started might not be great coming up with the idea, but when you actually know what you want to say and you're saying it, it can feel. I don't want to say it's like childbirth, but there's a release. There's like yeah. a birthing process yeah. to it's it. It's like taking a dump. It's you could say it's like taking a dump, which is a, a synchronicity because that's what Tony Soprano says about therapy, <laughs> and then Dr. Melfi says I prefer childbirth, but okay. Okay. So we just that's came great. at it. Uh, yeah the opposite way so um, i'm I just curious hear you. did ryan um go into his own like his own life like his personal life yeah i mean ryan and i have had potentially more deep conversations off mic but that's actually not true i think he did okay he's done it twice and they're two hours and you want to talk about the art of sed- or the seduction um, one of my things is talk to someone for two hours. Yeah. You can feel it too, right? Yeah. After the first hour, there's a slumping. Yeah. People slump. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a ba- it's not an energetic slump. It's a surrender. Yeah. It's a, and also I I just I say this to hopefully interest you. My oversharing begets your oversharing. It's yeah, not yeah, to yeah. manipulate you. No, I know, I know all it's about to that. To say like I of course you do. I I I understand who I'm speaking with. <laughs> yeah. but like. But it's but it, we're back to our original point. It's true. I'm actually saying, let's create a space where we can feel okay about ourselves yeah. and love ourselves and say yes to ourselves. Yeah. So it's not. There will be no. Here's yeah. Robert Greene's thoughts on Mr. Bean taking a shit. Like there's, there's no <laughs> clickbait. Or yeah. here's Ryan Holiday talking about not. his blah 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 his issues yeah. with his grandfather. It's none of that. Yeah. It's 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 this little gem that when people find it, they go, I think there's something real happening here. That's my hope. Well, the only other two podcasts I've been on that have been this long and similar are two other comedians, which is very interesting. Yeah. Joe Rogan yeah. and Whitney Cummings. Oh, I didn't know Whitney similar. went for the long haul. Yeah, they're two, three hours long. Whoa. Yeah. Interesting. I'd know that if Whitney ever had me on. You want me to help? You want me to do that? No, it's okay. I thought we were friends. <laughs> I'll get you that. She's she's amazing. She's a really interesting person. I find Whitney to be very interesting too. Yeah, she. That's a great episode of this podcast. Is Whitney? Yeah. She talks about. Oh, you had her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years and years ago. Oh well, there you go. I mean, she hasn't invited you on hers. Which I think I haven't read your book on war, but I think that's uh, she's incited a war with me now, and oh. I have to destroy her. Oh, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> That was 100% JK, but you're like, I think maybe he means it. No, no, no. Um, love it. And then the last question, and then yeah. we will get you out of here, oh. is uh, a little bit about your process. Oh, my process, right. Here's how I'm going to frame it, though, because I don't want you to just be like, well, I get my coffee. And I, well, I, I, could you remember the best, I asked this to Ryan, too, some of the best advice you've gotten about writing that you remember as you're writing that helps you? Well, um, I'm not somebody that likes to listen to people a lot, you know. Mm. I just like to say I'm doing my own thing. But I was I was 16 years old, maybe 15. I was in high school here in Los Angeles. I was taking English, and uh, I think it was AP English. I'm not sure. Um, Bragg? Uh, okay. 
<laughs> okay. Didn't need that, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> it was high-level genius. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, and you were the professor. I got you. I understand. Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't say My sorry. vanity is showing. It. I love it. Um, really? Really? Like, no, you're all really? good. You're all good. Um, and uh, I turned into paper for my English teacher. I don't remember what it was about. I thought it was God's gift to humanity. I thought it was the greatest thing ever written, that I was a genius, that I was going to get A++++. It was so good and smart and well-written. And I'd never seen so much red pencil on an essay in my life. Wow. I was humiliated. And I went to the teacher and I go, what, what's wrong here? You know, this How am is... I supposed to get an erection after this? <laughs> exactly. For sure, back then, that was definitely an issue when you're 16. You're getting an erection no matter what. <laughs> How am I right. going to get it's my like 500 direction complaint. today? <laughs> yes. You read Portnoy's complaint? No. Oh, it's a great, it's like a classic it's from the late 60s, Philip Roth. It's about this Jewish kid who's just like masturbating crazy and he's <laughs> masturbating in the, in, the, in the raw liver that his mother brings home. Oh and, my God. And all et cetera, et cetera. It's just a book about a boy <laughs> masturbating, but in the spirit of like crumb, like let's really go into some dark corners here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, how did I get, I got derailed the first you, Anyway. You got the so, essay back. Yeah, and it was, you know, just, and he said, Robert, when you write something like this, his name is Mr. Smith, when you write something like this, you can't be about you. You just used words and you just were just trying to show off. It's about the, it's about the audience. It's about the viewer. It's about communicating something to other people hmm. about what is real and not about what you think or feel, but you know something that's, that's external and not internal, hmm. that's like real and objective. And think of it like you're literally talking to somebody when you're writing it. And I thought, okay, that that and that's that was the best advice I've ever gotten. Mm. So that most people write, and they're thinking about what they want, how they're going to impress people. I see it every time I open the, the newspaper or get online, and I'm so sick of people's cutesy language, where it's obviously that it, it's just to show off, yeah. just to show off that they can pull off some metaphor just like a magic trick and i hate it i think it's stupid i see right through it it's not interesting it's not accurate yes right yeah whereas what you want to write is get rid of the pyrotechnics and all the fancy verbiage and communicate something solid and direct to the reader yeah and and that's what always has kind of motivated me is getting to the re something real figuring out something real like what is power what creates power and then making it very visceral and real to the reader, as opposed to what makes me feel good, you know? What a, sorry, I'm going to put red pencil just at the top of what you just said, and I'm going to write A++++. Okay, <laughs> okay. Look. Mr. Smith, God bless his soul. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll say it. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, he was great. That, what a great answer. I love that answer so much. Because what what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is... Stop with the sparklers. Like real, something true yeah. stops traffic. Yeah. And, and will make your heart skip a beat. And I read books. I read hundreds of books every year. And I have a real good bullshit detector. So mm. I'm reading a book by Oliver Sacks, who's, who's a really great writer. But man, he's talking about things and he's name dropping left, right, and center. Why do you have to tell us what the name of this person is just to impress us? Yeah. 
So I find like a lot of writing nowadays is kind of narcissistic. Uh, well, I know you're not in TV anymore, but I feel that way about a lot of dialogue where I'm like, yeah. oh, you want to show me that you can hit the ping pong ball back yeah, and yeah, forth? Yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And uh, you want to do your best David Mamet impression or whatever yeah, it might exactly. be. And I'm like, There's then only... you watch something simple done well and you're like, and true. Yeah. And you're like, oh man, it's, it, you really reminded me today. You've reinvigorated me that, yeah. that we're in the business of finding something real. Yeah. And that's really the only thing and you can dress it up as much as you want but if it's a pig it's going to be a pig when, yeah. once you put lipstick on it too yeah really good I, i'm going to say this one in case it makes you think of one like a real robert green tip somebody told me when i was writing a book leave it hot which means if you're on a roll but you're almost at the end of your day stop before you're done so well, you know where morning. that comes from tell me ernest hemingway that was one of hemingway's main advices to writers leave it hot well, he would say when you're writing something and it, you, you, it's going good, you sort of stop your typewriter because it's typewriters back then in mid-sentence and then come back to it the next day. It's a it? different way of expressing yes. it, but it's the same way. Do, is, do you feel that way? Do you like that one? I, I'm not that controlled or disciplined. Um, so I just write until I can because I'm not sitting down and just writing whatever the hell comes into my mind. I have to collate all of this research in these books. Mm. So my kind of fun time comes in the editing, which is really boring. But when I edit, because my first drafts are absolute shit. <laughs> Nobody would ever want to read my first drafts. Mm -hmm. So in the second, third draft, I start having fun. And then I start getting maybe a little bit hot. Mm. But uh, So I have a different kind of process than that. I know what you mean. I, I, Brian Mororescu, who did this podcast, he wrote, I'm pointing to it on my shelf, but I don't see it. He wrote The Immortality Key. And I'm just like, I wrote a book and it was just, uh, compared to his book and books like you write, I was like, this is just some bullshit. This is just me talking. Like, I'm just kind of like, and I grew up. I, I'm proud of my book. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But his is like, every page is footnoted and like, uh -huh. and it represents a trip he took to Italy. Like, there's a paragraph and it was him going to the Vatican. Like, uh -huh. that's why it took him, like, I think it was like 11 years to write wow, it or something. Wow. And I'm just like, you realize there's a way to just fart in the breeze and people will uh, still clap. <laughs> right. It's like, but uh, you see the success of, the, of uh, books like Immortality yours. Immortality is the key. The immor Oh, you just made it a Ryan Holiday book. Um, <laughs> the Immortality Key. Not, the key uh, is the immortality. Yes, Ryan's lesser known <laughs> tattoo. It says on his butt, uh, the immortality is the key. It's about the psychedelic origins of every faith, basically. Oh, yeah. There's been, I've been reading a lot about that. Though. You should read the immortality key then. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, You've no, just no, been, no, no, no. You're interested in that? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 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 I've seen some burning bushes, but it was never sober. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did. I had a psychedelic phase in life. We you all, did? Yeah. How far did you go? Or what? Oh, what, what I went. You? Brother, I went pretty damn far. Because I was, <laughs> get a load of this, I was in Berkeley in the uh, mid-70s, like 74, 75, oh, 76. Wow. It's the dead end, you know, the, the, the dregs the of the drug of era. Yeah. Oh, no, much after that. I'm not oh. that old. I thought um, the Summer of Love was 73. No, it's 67, I oh, think. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and uh, so we did LSD. We did lots of peyote. Peyote. We did mushrooms. Isn't peyote really, really strong? Peyote's the best of all of them. Really? And what we would do is um, we would get, they're called buttons, the, the little yeah, things buttons that grow on cactus. Yeah. 
and they have these like white hairs in them that if you eat you'll they'll kill you so you have to pull out all the white hairs we get the real buttons which nobody does anymore now and then um it's like they're really hard and then you have to like chop them up into really small bits because they taste like shit awful and make you throw up so you have to get them as small as you can and then you put it like in a peanut butter sandwich or in a smoothie as is the native american way yeah. <laughs> let's put okay. this in a pb and j <laughs> well they they would eat it you know, yeah and they would throw up but yeah. we didn't want to do that and then um and you'd eat like five or six buttons per person well whoa the best best of all of them like complete kaleidoscopic visions just just so memorable and um yeah not not vision so much but just like ecstasy and and enlightenment and revelatory and it all makes sense and everything is one and it's all energy and just you know and then then you know like we would go climbing on these cliffs and normally you would probably fall and die but you would felt like you were immortal and you managed to keep your balance because you were just on this drug and stuff wow. um and then you know we did mushrooms and we did uh, a lot of hash and <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving something out we did shoe polish shoe polish yeah what do you mean <laughs> are you fucking with me <laughs> what do you mean you huffed shoe polish Lady Esquire shoe polish. We had an English guy in our dorm, and he taught us about it. You gentlemen haven't heard of shoe polish? <laughs> Put down those buttons. Lady Esquire shoe polish. Come and <laughs> sniff on my Lady Esquires. And while you just, you're down there, give it a buff, Governor. You just put it on the on a rag or something, and you sniff it. And it would make you trip? Oh, God. It was awful, but for like 10 minutes, you felt like you were God. <laughs> <laughs> soul polish you mean it would uh, polish your soul and it still is around i don't want to encourage people wow that's insane yeah uh so you had these revelatory experiences oh yeah so you've yeah. had a taste of immortality i'm trying to get you on my side i want you to be like robert where could you go yeah yeah and um if I thought back back on it, I could probably. Agree. I'll say yes. You're right. I no, no, no. I'm just, just going to give it. I've seduced you. I've no, surrendered. it's only because you and I. I have to agree. We all want a good death, and my hope is in that moment to recall something like we learned on our peyote buttons and 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 have that quell our fear. Yeah. Because there's no doubt we're going to be afraid, and there's no doubt we're going to be. You know, it'll be what it is. Unpleasant, scary unhappy but i think the moment isn't like that yeah there's resistance and then the the cessation i've been reading a lot about that lately like i'm reading uh aldous huxley Mm -hmm. um and his you know he took lsd when he died he did yes yes wow because he was in a lot of pain but also he just wanted to have that experience and you know he kind of talked you know through his wife who kind of recorded it all of kind of the the sense of surrender and the bliss that is involved. A lot of people have reported about that. I'm, I'm sure there's some many people who've had a, a much different experience, but I think that last moment, mm. you know, I think there's there's something in there that's something happens to your brain and you kind of feel like released and liberated from something. Well, that's what Ramdas said. It's like taking off a tight shoe. Ah, I like to think of it as when. My daughter and I talk about it. We're far from that. But it's like if I have a cup of water and I pour it in the ocean, the cup of water is gone and we can be sad. 
and we can mourn it. Like, let's That's not be phony. That's a great metaphor. That's a great metaphor. But it's, it just went back to its source. Right. It's still there. Yeah. And we're back to you talking to your friend in your dream. Yeah. It's still here. Yeah. Because where else could it go? Yeah, but, you know, but then there's this thing that I, I wrote about in, uh, I can't remember which book anymore. Uh, it was from a Japanese writer. Huh? <laughs> the Bible? The no, Holy Bible? I, I wrote it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> the power of the Holy Bible? <laughs> no, not <Sorry>. yet. <laughs> um, where, uh, yeah, my friend lives in my br- in my brain, in my dream. But what about 600 years from now? Where is he? Mm. You know? You, you are you asking? Yeah, I, I actually think everything's happening simultaneously. If you if you picture uh, reality as a marble, uh, uh, the way that we're experiencing it is by drilling through it, like a like something you drill through the earth, and that's time. Time is a gift from God to make this insanity uh, a, a narrative. God is like, or or it is like a writer, and it's like I'm going to give Robert Greene the experience of being Robert Greene. And to do that, I'm going to let him drill through in a linear way, even though your birth and your death are all happening simultaneously. Uh-huh. Wow. That's that's just an idea. I think there's something to that. It's something I was just writing about recently. Yeah, so I mm. think there's definitely something to it. Mm. Tell me an NDE that, that sticks out, a near-death experience. Even that I've read about? Yeah, that you're writing about? Well, I like collecting stories from just everyday people. Uh, you know, I mean, I love Aldous Huxley, but um, I don't know if I can remember it so exactly. But <clears throat> this guy wrote there's a um, an anthology called Death and Philosophy, and the first essay in it is just about this guy who was an architect, and he was in his 30s, I think, and he suddenly he got like a, a mold infection from his house, mm. and it just collapsed and he was dying you know and he was young and um and he kind of relates how everything kind of fell apart in the brain and he he no longer had a sense of of an ego the ego kind of disappeared and sense of time was completely warped and how things looked differently to him. And he literally was dying. He was brought back to life almost miraculously mm. because the doctors left him for dead. So he literally was came much closer than I ever did. Mm. Um, he's got bragging rights that I don't have. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's, he's 50 cent your Eminem. I understand. Uh, I'm not. He an, I'm, he's 50 cent and I'm Ja Rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want a fire festival refund then, please. <laughs> okay. I'm still waiting. Right. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I didn't go. Um, and uh, just how um, things kind of were dissolving in front of his eyes. And I'm not giving it nearly enough uh, justice. It was really, really one of the more interesting stories because he wasn't like a writer and he wasn't expecting this and it came suddenly and he was so close to death and he literally had these visions and these sensations um, where, and I've had, there's a writer named uh, Susan Blackmore who wrote a book called Dying to Live mm. and it's about near-death experiences and she's a psychologist, a neuroscientist who tries to explain what happens in the brain and why you see tunnels and why you ha- your whole life flashes in front of you, et cetera. You know? um, and so some of that's in him because he's explaining to it why uh, neurologically his vision is, is compromised. But the essence of it is 
is that we live in an illusion. It's like the matrix. Our brains create an illusion, create a construction of reality that's not actually what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all like a fiction that our brains are creating, like the ego, like time, etc. And then when you're dying, it all falls apart. And you see reality for the first time, or not for right. the first time, because yeah. you saw when you were two years old. Yeah. But it all, all the all the construction, all the mirages disappear. The matrix and, of beliefs. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's real, it's confronting you. And that's sort of the bliss that a lot of people report, that they agree the maya, the illusion, all falls, falls away. That's Roger Ebert's last words. It's all an elaborate joke. Hoax. He says it's all an elaborate hoax, oh. but he said it with joy. Ah. The thing that I love, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm not putting down science, but there is a certain hubris to it and Sorry. arrogance to it, where where there's a TED talk, and I'm getting this from Rupert Spira, um, in large part, almost entirely, is that there's a TED talk, a very popular TED talk about how reality is an agreed upon hallucination, uh-huh. and it's everything that you're just saying. And then they go on to say, and this is where it's constructed in the brain. Right, right, right. And you're like... Who is this? I I don't know, but I've watched it, but I don't know who did it. But if you type in TED Talk hallucination, it'll be... It's very popular. And Rupert was very wise, I think, in pointing out that he's like this... Again, it's just just an overconfidence of science. Oh, yeah. By saying that it originates in the brain. He's like... That's like saying... You're having a dream, and you're saying the origin of the dream, and then you pick up a phone in the dream as you go, is this phone? But it is the dream, meaning the brain is part of the hallucination. Right. Like, isn't it more apt to say consciousness, the phenomenon of awareness, is creating all of it, and the brain just appears in the hallucination to be where the phenomenon is localized? But the brain, when we, when I, take a CAT scan in this agreed-upon hallucination and look at my brain in this agreed-upon hallucination, that image of the brain is the hallucination. It's not real. Right. It's not reality. You understand, like you can't take a piece of a dream and say this is where the dream comes from. Yeah. So I, I, I'm always with it, and I love everything you said, that, that we have that moment of the Maya, the veil is parted. Um, but I do think it's funny that there's a human arrogance that we think, yeah, yeah. even though I am a part of God's dream, I will tell you where it originates from. I'm reading a very good book on that, right? Very subject, right? Really? Now. Yeah. What's it called? I think it's called The Left Brain of God. Um, <laughs> it, have you heard of Dr. Jill Bolte, Taylor? No. Does she like me? Huh? I'm just kidding. Does she like you? Does she like she me? loves you. <laughs> <laughs> She's a big fan. Oh, good. Um, it's about her and William Blake, the poet. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a neuroscientist. I'm going to be interviewing her for my next chapter. She was a neuroscientist um, who, when she was 37, had a major stroke. Oh, the stroke of genius. Uh, or the insight. stroke of insight. Yes, yeah, her. I know her. Yeah. Yes. So it's sort of about her and her her insight. And um, because as, as the blood fills her brain from the hemorrhage, part of each little component of her brain starts shutting down. And as it shuts down, she's able to see what's shutting down. Mm. And she has this incredible feeling of euphoria and bliss. And she loses a sense of her bodily limits. She becomes yes. part of everything around her. And it completely changes her. And she's never been the same before. Yes. And this guy is writing a book about her and, and William, the poet William Blake. And he's ranting against science and exactly what you're saying right now. So you might... 
Well, the observer is part of the observed. It's impossible to extricate yourself from the stew that we are and be completely objective. Have you read The Master and the Emissary? No. Oh, is this a must read? Yeah. I'm going to, let's swap emails and I want you okay. to give me some books to read okay. based on our conversation. Okay. And, and I'm going to read so many of yours, you're, you're going to have no idea. You're going to get seven cents from me. I'm going to get what? Seven, seven cents. What's that Because mean? I buy so many of your books, you're going to get a check for it. Oh, oh, oh. I'm completely joking. That's about what, maybe six and a half cents. Okay, six and a half cents. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I love all of that stuff. Boy, you just, you're just, I really feel like we're brothers. It's great. Well, you know, there's one other area that we're brothers, and I'll leave it at this, is that um, people come to my house and they're like, I can see they're a little bit disappointed. Hilarious. I live in like a Spanish bungalow from the 20s. Yes. And it's not huge. It's, you know, 2,300 square feet. It's not small, but it's not huge. Yes. It's not a palace. And the fact that it's we're... It's old. And the wood floors are not exactly polished buff. Yes. And, you know, and, and they're kind of like, I thought the 48... I could hear them thinking, the 48 laws of power guy, he shouldn't be living in it. Yeah. He should be yeah. living in this this ugly modern palace type yes. thing, yes. you know, with his Maserati in the driveway. Yes. And they're disappointed. And you're the only person I've ever met who's kind of like that. Yes. I take that as a high compliment. No. Like like a lot I told you when you came in and admired the house. I was like none of my fancy showbiz friends admire this house. <laughs> they say to my face this is a good starter house. I'm like I don't understand. What are you talking And and it's dumpy. Like it's it's almost like by design we're sitting on this couch and you said is this it? Yeah. And I was like I noticed that on your Zoom interviews, you're in a room. I'm like, that looks like a room in my house. Yeah. You have your Buddhas and your books and stuff. Yeah. But it's not white marble. No, it's not. It's not, not white marble. It's not soulless. Exactly. <laughs> I said, when we bought this house and we've maintained it, I want to live in a house where it looks like elves live there. Uh-huh. Well, I could say that. And pixies. Yeah. And fairies. I yeah. want it to feel magic and, and special and a place that you want to hide. Like a little craftsman house have that. I love craftsman yeah, house. Me they too. have that that kind of feeling like it's like something from Hansel and Gretel or something. Completely agree. Yeah, yeah. A fairy tale house. Yeah. And I look at so many houses and I'm just like, what what? I yeah. want to live inside the logo for Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is garbage. Well, yeah. clearly we could talk for nine hours. I actually have I, I believe you probably go to some physical therapy yourself. I have yeah. physical therapy for my hand. I had a procedure on my hand. What's wrong with your hand? Nothing anymore. Uh, I had Dupuytren's contracture. Do you know what that is? It's where something pulls your finger in slowly. Oh, very old people have it. I you have see? it from my stroke. Yeah, I wonder if that's Dupuytren's. That might be the same effect. But well, I, I just the same. lost all sensation in my left side of my body and my fingers yeah. are definitely... I have a claw hand. Not, I, wait, I'm going to say that's not full claw, Robert. It, it was. <laughs> there you go. Then you're doing your PT. Yeah. Can I also point out, this is Ramdas. He lived for 30, 40 years after his stroke. I mean, That's Ramdas? Yeah, and that's post-stroke Ramdas. This is a Ramdas. Uh, that's what he looked like. That, uh, yeah, well, that's him as a, a young man. He and, lived 30 years after his stroke? And they were like, you're going to be dead within two years. And, yeah. he, and he lived. I've had that same too as well. I'm not, same I'm thing. still here. That's right. Well, he was, my favorite Ramdas is post-stroke Ramdas because oh. there's this How beautiful. How old was he when he had a stroke? I'm not good 60s? with time. Uh, no, earlier. I think, no, it might be around there. Let's he died when you. he was 88. Um, but he, like me, or maybe I'm projecting, but like he was driven and he was, gregarious and traveling and, and loved the yeah. juice of life. And then after his stroke, he had this, the obstacle is the way. 
he had this, I wouldn't call it a humbling, but there was a groundingness. Uh, like you said, from your near-death experience, something changed that he never would have asked for. He used to say, I don't wish you a stroke, I wish you the grace from the stroke. Uh, right, right. So there, um, there's um, a great movie called uh, Going Home on, huh? on Netflix, and it's about his stroke. And Did Fierce he write grace. a book about that? He might have, but Fierce Grace is a documentary about him and his stroke specifically, and Going Home on Netflix are both Fierce. Right, Fierce I, I Grace. That, um, link you're going to send that to yeah. I'm not going to remember. We'll email each other. I want to hear about his stroke and Fierce I wonder Grace if he had a one. similar one to mine. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, 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 he was on LSD when he had his stroke. I believe. Was that right? Yeah, I believe so. Well, I guess I better not take LSD anymore. I don't know, man. Maybe it's what you're waiting for. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Let's, okay, uh, all our guests get this gift basket. It's got some peyote buttons with the white hairs removed. Oh, really? I'm just kidding. That's, that'd be the best gift basket I've ever got. Oh, my God. And there's some shoe polish in there. The, the, the Dainty Queen Huffer's shoe polish. Lady Esquire. Lady Esquire. She's, uh, LadyEsquire.com slash weird for 10% off your God-inducing uh, shoe polish. Um, Robert, I think you can tell I really enjoyed this. Ah. And Same here. what is the most recent book is bro. is the daily uh, the 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 daily laws the daily laws and then before that was the laws of human nature yeah but the daily laws is kind of like Ryan's daily stoic yeah my version of that love it Ryan kind of helped me with it that's great and uh, you know Ryan was my apprentice for yes I did know that. he was my my son well he's who put us in touch and I'm so glad I know. that he did well I think anybody that heard this is going to check out all of your stuff so oh, I hope so you still stand by the 48 laws I mean that you're still proud of it why you know, shouldn't I be no what I mean is I, I have author friends and I'm like I'm going to start with your first book and they're like don't don't oh, I'm not like that book. I'm yeah. not like that you're proud of it good yeah sure I'm proud of it you should be fuck that yeah, yeah fuck that shit I'm not going to fuck that shit give in to fake shame and fake humility that's right it's a goddamn masterpiece. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, here's what we do to end the show. It gives us a sense of closure. Is we have the guests say, keep it crispy, just like it says right there on the Legos. Uh, I could tell you what it means, but it just means this was a crispy conversation. Let's okay. just say that. Okay, everyone, keep it crispy. <laughs> Loved it. All right. Thank you, Robert. You're very welcome. My eyes can't 